Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, or good evening, I guess that would be, to Film Film Project. This is not Dave Kale, this is Trish Lambert, and I will neither confirm nor deny the rumor that Dave Kale and I are the same person, because we have not been together on the Film Film Project, and even though during the webathon we were supposedly together, if you notice, Trish was not on camera, so That's we true. still have not established Can't prove whether it. or not Dave and I are the same person, yes. <laughs> So uh, Dave was here the last two times, and I unfortunately could not be. I'm here today, and we are sort of waiting to see if Dave's going to show up. And if he does, that'd be great. If not, we will carry on without him. So we are in season. We're going to be doing episode three of season three of the Silmarillion Film Project, and we have a lot to cover. So we better get to it, right, Corey? That's right. Excellent. So welcome back, everybody. Um, I am feeling so much better after our discussion last time of the. Uh, uh, of the outline of season three. So we're going to start with reviewing that. You guys have responded, as you always do, uh, to my uh, charge to come up with a uh, with a, a sort of an official and detailed outline uh, based on the you know many of the ideas that we worked out last time. Uh, so we're going to start with that here in just a minute. But first, I wanted to just uh, take a minute to emphasize how grateful I am to you guys for your wonderful response to our fundraising campaign. Our fundraising campaign was Awesome. We ended up raising in our campaign, uh, uh, Trish. We ended up at uh, at almost fifty three thousand dollars. Oh, that's awesome! Um, it was fantastic. Awesome. We, we beat our old our our previous record by uh, ten thousand dollars this year. Wow. It was uh, it was it was it was stunning. And is the rumor true that you're going to be running to Mordor as a chicken? That is true. In fact, yes, <laughs> the the rumor is true. So as soon as we can get that sorted out. Um, uh, I'm, uh, uh, we're going to be doing, a, I'm officially calling it the fried chicken run. Um, uh, uh, you should call it the hot wings run. The hot wings run. <laughs> 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 anyway, yes, I will be doing, I will be doing. That a, will be fun. Uh, That'll be really interesting. It'll be, people will get it. Uh, people on Twitch will get a chicken inside view of Mordor, which is going to be right. pretty amazing. Yeah, I am. I am very excited to see uh, uh, to see Mordor for the first time uh, through the eyes of a chicken, as I saw Minas Tirith for the first time. Uh, so it's gonna be it's gonna be pretty great. Um, uh, and yeah, Marielle, I'm not sure how long that's gonna take, but it'll be a little while uh, to run all the way. Though you know, the run straight through to Minas Tirith didn't take more what than what like six hours? hours maybe it was between four hours, hours. Something, something like that it was i, I expected it to take a whole through, while need, i don't think we need to go through minister i think we go through Athelion. so right you know i think so uh, hello grow will know so our yeah, buddy yeah that's good our buddy rob henderson will be yeah so yeah stay yes. tuned for that that should be a lot of fun yes but anyway yes so yes. that's great i'm so thrilled that the annual fundraiser did it's so great. Everybody is so it's thank you so much for supporting Sigma. It's awesome. Absolutely. That was really wonderful. Um I wanted to just also do two quick announcements. One is that um uh Texmoot. Texmoot is coming. We're doing Texmoot in uh Fort Worth in January, January thirteenth. And there's a call for papers out for Texmoot. So if you're in Texas, anywhere around if if uh if the Dallas Fort Worth area is in any way accessible to you. Uh, I just wanted to, to invite you to not only plan to come on January 13th, I'm really looking forward to my second ever trip to Texas and uh, 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 getting to see folks down at Texmoot, but also um, to there's, there's, you know, there's still uh, uh, time now to uh, propose a discussion or paper topic or something. So um, 
that would be uh, that'd be really cool. So, just wanted to you can you can go to they even uh, the the TextMoot fo- uh, folks are really enthusiastic. They even made up their own website, TextMoot.org. Uh, so you can just go to TextMoot.org and get all the information uh, about the conference. So, um, uh, so that's really good. The other thing, Karita uh, <laughs> requests a cowboy hat selfie. You know that seems. It kind of seems like if I go down to Texas and don't end up wearing, if I, you know, how can I be at Texmoot without a cowboy hat, right? I mean, I don't own one, but uh, it'll be a case of all hat no cow. You know, that's a that's a saying in Texas. That man hat, is all no, hat no cow. Okay, what does that mean? I'm not it sure. means he's in it for the appearance, but he doesn't have any substance. Be, you know, okay. All hat, no cow means like you're just kind of a poser, right? You're just faking it. Yeah, yeah. Okay, exactly. All right. Yeah. It's all hat, no cow. <laughs> that's um, that's a. I like that expression. <laughs> that's cool, huh? I like that expression in several ways. I'm, I, I think I'm going to try to integrate that into my vernacular. <laughs> He's all hat you can no use cow. that, like, you know, when you're doing Mythac or something. Yeah, for, totally. Like, yeah. I'll it's see like, if I can. Is all hat, no cow. <laughs> He's all hat, no cow. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody will immediately know just what I mean. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's um, that's pretty good. Anyway, okay. So, text mood. January 13th. Um, I am, uh, after the wonderful, Trish, did you hear about how awesome Iowa moot was? I did. Chris oh, Stevens actually filled me in. He said it was really terrific. It was great. We had 70 people show up. 70 That's people great. for a first time ever regional event. That was just, That's great. it was great. It was so much fun to connect. just shows you how the people out in the sticks are clamoring for Signum, you know? People well, outside the Atlantic area. It was really fun to get the opportunity. And, uh, uh, and you know, it was definitely something that I... One of the... It was one of the chief impressions I came away with <clears throat> is how how happy and you know like the 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 message i i got from so many people out there was just how grateful they were that we were able to come out to them you know there was even like a you know in hearing a lot of people there was a there was a a a glimpse of i never thought this would happen kind of thing you know uh so yeah, that you know, I I I never I I never thought you guys would actually come out to the Midwest. So anyway, I'm go. I'm really we lost you we lost your sound there for a little while. Oh really? Am I back now? Yeah, That's I weird. forgot the last. Oh yeah, the last five ten minutes. Last five ten no, minutes. Just, yeah, yeah. No, 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 not five ten minutes. It was um, <laughs> uh, the thing that re- you really that really I think you said the thing that really impressed you or the really thing that really got you about. The, yeah, it was just that uh, uh, you know the the not only the eagerness of the folks out there uh, in the Midwest to participate in the discussion, but how uh, not exactly surprised, that's not quite right, but um, how sort of delighted and grateful they were that we actually could come out. You know, there was a, there was this sense of uh, you know, like they never thought it would, it would happen, you know, that we were able to come out near them. So I am, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm excited. And uh, Tony, you know, a, a, a misty mountain moot uh, near Denver would be fun. Actually, that would be that would be really neat. Uh, I'm I'm excited to do all kinds of regional events. Um, uh, this is so yes, I've definitely gotten a taste for this now, and I'm looking to travel all over the place and 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 do regional moots. Um, 
So, uh, will travel. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, cool. All right. So, um, good. Oh, hi, Lee up there in the Twitch chat. Good to see some folks joining me on Twitch. And I see I forgot to change the title on the Twitch channel, which is great. So, uh, hi, Twitch folks. This is not the Treason of Isengard. This is the Film Film Project. So, all right. Speaking of which, let's. At least it doesn't say girls of Middler. So, yeah. <laughs> exactly. I've changed it once or twice since then. Um, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, let us proceed, because today we're going to talk about Episode 3, the long-procrastinated Episode 3. Uh, but first, <laughs> before we do anything so rash, uh, I want to review the outline that you guys made. Uh, uh, and I'll tell you in advance that I am I'm really happy with this. We'll see. There might be some individual things that we kind of discuss, and I, I imagine some things will end up maybe getting shuffled a little bit as we go through. But I'm in general, I'm really I am now feeling ready in my mind to move forward. So uh, the first two, of course, are the ones we've already done. Uh, episode three: Unin Storm, Balerion in peacetime, Thingol's court, Kierden's haven, Ail's misanthropy. Uh, that's an excellent. Uh, cluster of things there to talk about. Uh, Sindar encounter orcs. That's the main event on the Angband plot. And I love how uh, this uh, this outline does a really great job of tracking through, um, of uh, tracking through. You know, following basically our three main plot lines, which is the you know the Noldor plot line, the Balerian plot line, and the Angband plot line. Okay, so in the Angband plot, Bulldog introduced and Sauron sent to find Ungoliant. So that's what we'll be talking about later on. Um, Khazad Aimenu, episode four. First contact between Sindar and dwarves. Tentative alliance sought orc skirmish. And uh, Sauron meets Shelob in the Angband plot. Episode five, safe haven. Meme ejected from Menegroth. And construction begins. Meme's embitterment starts. Angband uh, plot. Bulldog sent south under Sauron's command. And then episode six, distant cousins, the green elves, and Ents arrive in Beleriand. So we get uh, we get uh, our first tree beard action sequences here uh, in episode <laughs> six. Uh, episode seven, the doom of Mandos, return to Noldor and Aramon. Finarfin turns back. Uh, so of course we'll get the the actual doom of Mandos uh, in this episode. Um, and since and that that in a sense, of course, that that seems a little bit plot light that episode um, in that of course like the Doom of Mandos is awesome but it's not going to take an hour to do the Doom of Mandos but since we will just be joining the Noldor again after three and a half episodes away from them um, it'll be good to do so you know we'll have plenty to do in sort of like meanwhile what's been going on with the Noldor and where do things stand as far as like because we will have not seen them at all since um uh, you know, really since since the Kinslang, so there will be a lot of questions that we need to settle, like how's Fingolfin doing these days? Like, what's fin- Fingolfin's relationship with Finarfin like? Um, you know, it's so f- uh, there's going to be a lot of, like, aftermath. How are different people dealing with the aftermath of the Kinslang? Um, Fanor, Fingolfin, the sun, you know, uh, uh, we got we have to we have to do some really good, um, uh, Fingen Mithros stuff, right, to get things set up. We also re- need to remember that we need to uh, even have some good Arathel Sons of Feanor uh, scenes, you know, th- those those relationships that we need to set up because there's not going to be much, too much chance after this. Anyway, so 
we need to, we need to be thinking about that stuff. So there'll be plenty for us to do in that episode. Um, and, uh, okay. And, uh, Angband wants Sauron sends the werewolves against the Havens. So we're going to get the destruction of the Havens. Uh, and then in the Balerian pot, Kyrdin's people retreat to their ships. Uh, 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 subsequent to the werewolf attack on the Havens. Um, episode 8, Betrayal. Feanor arrives in Middle-earth. The argument with Mithros and the burning of the ships and the death of Amrod. Um, I am uh, not really... Uh, well, we'll have to t- talk more about the death of the death of Amrod uh, there, but anyway, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll sort that out when the time comes. Um, shift back over to, Va- to Valinor and have Finarfin, uh, returning. Um, I really like that juxtaposition, the return of Finarfin to Valinor being juxtaposed with the betrayal of Fingolfin by Feanor. I think that, that is a really interesting juxtaposition that has a lot of potential. Um, and Fingolfin realizes he's been abandoned, in Beleriand, uh, Círdan sees the sees the light of the fires from a distance, and Gothmog and his spies uh, uh, see the fires as well. And Sauron begins his big plan uh, for attacking uh, Doriath. Episode nine: Dagor Nuin Giliath. Feanor's forces mow down the orcs and push back Gothmog. And then in Beleriand, uh, South Beleriand. Uh, Bulldog's forces mow down the green elves. <laughs> I love the parallel there. And by the way, Hakan, I thought that this was kind of delightful, uh, that in the end we ended up compromising on the which battle comes first, the first battle or the second battle, by having them both happen in the same episode. <laughs> I was like, okay, that works. Uh, I can I can get behind that. Um, uh, okay, so the green elves and Ents retreat to Osiriand. Um and uh, oh, by the way, um, yes, I wanted to apologize for that. So you may hear thumping uh, and noises in the background. I'm afraid I've got some construction going on in my house. Um, so the thumping noises you hear are uh, uh, flooring being installed two floors up from me, and it's just, I'm as far away as I can get from it. But if you hear uh, if you hear thumping, then uh, <laughs> it, don't be alarmed, and I apologize for that. I think the noises shouldn't be too hideous, but you'll it will be audible, I'm afraid. Um, okay, and then in Valinor we get Fingolfin setting out on the Helcaraxa. Okay, so episode 10, the Ice Desert. Uh, we get, so the focus is on the crossing of the Helcaraxa there. Uh, in Beleriand, we have Doriath overrun by Shelob's spiders and Gothmog retreating to Angband, but Fanor surrounded by Balrogs near the gates of Angband. Um, this, by the way, really... Uh, I, one of the things that I was really excited to see in this outline is that we have solved one of the things that I was still really concerned about, which is, as you may remember, my... What do we do on the Helcaraxa? Like, we seem to have a couple crossing the Helcaraxa episodes and, um, you know, how are we going to stretch that out in a way that's not going to be painful? Um, answer by doing lots of other, you know, by, by having plenty to do in the Beleriand and Angband stories too, because if we only need, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of, uh, you know, Helcaraxa stuff, that's easy enough, right? It's, uh, having it support the entire, um, the entire episode for several episodes in a row that I was kind of, uh, that I was kind of concerned about. Um, 
Okay. And um, and then uh, episode 11, The Spirit of Fire, The Death of Feanor, uh, The Sons of Feanor Renew the Oath, um, uh, In Valinor, The Making of the Sun and Moon, uh, and the Auroras uh, are, are seen on the Helcaraxa, The Death of Elenwe, uh, and uh, on the Helcaraxa again. And then down in Beleriand, Melian emerges from Menegroth and creates the girdle to dispel the spiders. That's the scene we were envisioning last time of uh, uh, this, that very dramatic cleansing of Doriath and uh, establishment of the girdle by Melian. Um, and I, I really, I really like that. Um, both this idea of having the uh, having Doriath be in that much danger, and to show that it is only it is only because of the power of Melian that they were able to survive at all, um, and this really emphasizes that. But um, uh, it also um, the girdle is such an important thing. But I was really worried about how do we make it, how do we show it, you know, how do we make it clear how important the girdle is because it's like, okay, I'm now going to put this like magical, but like probably invisible barrier around the woods. So nobody can, can come in. Like that is, it's a negative thing, not a positive thing, right? A barrier that keeps people out. And that's not exciting. You know, it's not, this is this establishment of it. Um, and the way that it's going to be sort of a, uh, attached, uh, associated with cleansing, you know, is, um, is I think really cool and also nice because it helps to set up Galadriel and Lothlorien later on as well. Um, So, uh, and of course, and I have to admit, whenever we're depicting Melian, I'm going to have like half an eye on Galadriel, right? Uh, And and setting up that parallel because that parallel is, I think, a really important one. Love Galadriel over on the side taking notes. (laughs) Right, exactly. Exactly. Um, Yeah. Now, Tony, that's a really good question. Tony wonders if the establishment of the girdle weakens Melian the way that Melkor putting out his power weakens him. Um, I don't know, Tony. On the one hand, the mere exerting of their power does not seem to weaken... Like, making the stars doesn't seem to weaken Varda, for instance. You know, forging stuff doesn't seem to, you know, like wrestling bouts don't tire out Tolkas exactly. You know, that is, when they are performing their functions, when they're exerting their power in order to perform their functions, that doesn't seem to lessen them. The thing that happens with Melkor is specifically when he puts forth, not just when he exerts his power, but when he disperses his power among his servants, right? When he puts some of his own spirit into them in order to, uh, in order to, you know, to, to, to raise them, to make them stronger and to use them as more powerful instruments to dominate others. Um, like what Sauron does with the ring, of course, when Sauron puts much of his own spirit into the ring of power in order to enable it to overcome the, the power of the elven rings, um, in a sense, that's similar to what uh, to what Sauron was doing. Remember that where this starts, and this is actually something that we might want to. Um, I'm thinking this is maybe something that we can do in season four. Um, uh, Tony is really showing the beginning of this process by Sauron, how he he really begins to 
to disperse himself because I'm thinking the failure of the orcs, um, not, and they fail less in the south, of course, but the fail, the, the complete, fa- the failure of the orcs against the Noldor, right? The way that the Noldor just, the orcs can't possibly stand up against them. That I think is what prompts initially Morgoth to say, okay, the elves have been invested with power. You know, the Calaquendi are coming over and they're, they're, they're full of this, uh, you know, this Valinorian fire. Um, I've got to make my orcs match them. So I'm, you know, so just as Sauron is saying, you know, the elves have made these rings of power. I need to make, a, to put myself into a ring of power that can trump theirs, right? So he's trying to beef up the orcs in order to, to, to parallel and combat uh, what the elves do. And then, of course, he wants to make bigger and bigger weapons. So you get Glaurung and the dragons and, uh, uh, and, 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 and stuff like that. So we have, so that's how you get lessened, um, not by the mere exertion. Um, yeah, yeah, not, exactly. Lance, there is a sense in which the, his exertion of power there, it's not just performing his function, right? It's not just doing his, using his power to do sort of what he was meant to do. It's an abuse of his power. Um, yeah, it, as Carita says, not in keeping with his purpose. Exactly, exactly. Um, uh, so, now I agree, Marielle, that the girdle is something that is continually maintained by Melian, so there's like a continual effort on her part. Um, I would think that that's why she doesn't do anything else, you know, other than give advice that her husband doesn't pay attention to. So, like, basically, she's restricted to doing, you know, she is exerting her power and continuously exerting her power. So there's no question of, like, her going on the offensive or something like that, you know. So I I think that basically this is just, this is what she settles in to do. But I don't think we want to show it weakening her. I don't think we want to show her... um, as if she's suffering because of it or anything. Um, I would be perfectly fine with showing her being fully occupied by it. Right. Um, and that's okay. Um, uh, so yeah, again, I'm, but here I want to, uh, uh, like, you know, Tony's thinking about like Gandalf being weakened with his combat with the Balrog. And of course, even, even Tolkas gets all tuckered out right after all of what he, the power that he exerts in helping the Valar to be, remember how it's like, you know, when he like takes a long nap right <laughs> after his wedding that he, uh, that uh, Melkor sneaks back into the world. So um, it's not that the Valar can't ever get weary or that the Ainur can't ever get weary. They can get weary, but there's a difference between weariness um, which will pass, as with Gandalf, of course, even it passes very quickly. Um, uh, anyway, there's a difference between weariness, which can pass, and that dispersing of himself, that uh, that weakening of himself, that Melkor, uh, that happens to Melkor as a consequence of how he uses his power. Um, now, Hakan, I agree that Morgoth put... Uh, Pours his uh, puts power into the orcs before the Noldor arrive, but I would well we'll talk about that a little bit later. We're going to get to the orcs uh, later. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll come back to that. Come back to that. Um, yeah.
Yeah, again, I don't want, I don't, I don't want people to, I don't want to give the impression that the girdle is bad for Millian. Um, I think that is, that that is an appropriate use of her power. Um, and we don't want to be like, self-sacrifice is cool, but I don't think we want to make the girdle appear self-sacrificial. You know, like, poor Melian burning herself out 24-7 to keep the girdle in place. Like, I don't want poor Melian to be what people are thinking, right? This is, um... Again, like, she doesn't have any juice left for anything else. Like, she's totally occupied with the girdle and with being wise. But, but that's okay. Like, I, you know... Thingle and Melian sitting in power in the midst of the girdle are they're like they're good and strong and not you know she's not weary um I don't think that she's weary at all um yeah yeah I wouldn't wanna uh I wouldn't I wouldn't want to even go there again we might we might work it in at some point into a conversation to to you know, maybe someone from someone who doesn't know her, someone who doesn't know the situation, like one of the, uh, you know, one of the the sons of Finarfin or something, um, has a conversation where they ask, like, why doesn't you know Melian is 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 you know is so powerful to repel, um, you know, to repel our enemies? Why can't she like come with us and attack and help us in attacking Thangorodrum or something like that? And they can explain, like. Um, the girdle's awesome, but she's tapped. You know, she's maxed out. So, Mariel, yes, I don't think it should seem painful at all, uh, the girdle. Um, again, remember, we're wanting to not do what Peter Jackson did with Gladriel. <laughs> we're wanting to go in. So, Melian is not going to turn green at any point. Uh, like, that she is not going to... And that, it's, honestly, it's one of the main... Th- I mean, the, the turning green thing was weird enough. Um, but the the sense that Peter Jackson gave what I objected to most in that is that sense that he, that he gave that by exerting her power she was doing something wrong or like right. taking evil into herself in some way or that this was a I mean, you know and I I I want to be I want to be miles away from that um yeah yeah so yeah um Right, exactly. Uh, Hakon says if she would grow weary doing that, Tom Bombadil would be completely washed out by the Third Age. Yeah, I mean, yes, exactly. Now, I mean, if either one of them, Tom Bombadil or Melian, attempted to, like, continue to expand, right? I mean, if she tried to, like, drive Morgoth out of Beleriand entirely by widening the girdle, that would be a strain. She couldn't do it, right? And that that would make her... Mm-hmm. Way. But so basically, she's doing what she can do, and, you know, what she can do, she's perfectly capable of doing, but she's not pushing it past what she can do. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah, no, and she's not going to put her power into Beleg and the other warriors or anything like that. No, exactly. The, the only the only hint of that, of course, is Lembus, right? She's going to be the she's going to you know it's going to be Melian who invents Lembus, uh, and so there is some of like the blessing of the queen that will uh, uh, that will be bestowed upon people through the giving of Lembus, but it, but that's that's a minor thing. This is not uh, you know. In fact, again, that's a thing that we could actually contrast. Um, with 
Sauron's investment of power into his uh, uh, his his folks. So yeah, Hakan, I'm th- the first time we get Lembus. Lembus first appears uh, in the alliterative lay of the children of Hurin. I think Beleg has some and brings it to. That's how he helps. One of the ways in which he helps Turin and the outlaws uh, when he uh, when he gets to them. Um, so. That's. I mean, it's it's not articulated in the same way. The word isn't used, and it's not articulated in the same way. Um, but it's 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 pretty clear, especially since it's in the gift of the queen and everything. Um, it's uh, it's 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 pretty clear that the that that's the origin of Lembus, and that when Lembus is given to the fellowship uh, in Lorien, it's uh, it's uh, it's a uh, hearkening back to that moment um, in the Lay of the Children of Hurin from Melian. So um, plus again, Galadriel, Melian, um, it all it all makes sense. So yes, I do think that we we will need to introduce Lembus, and. Uh, uh, and we can make that be, you know, one of the one of the other ways in which she sort of blesses her people, and in which the the uh, one of the, th- the other things that kind of sets the elves of of Beleriand, or no, uh, not just of Beleriand, of of Doriath apart to some extent. Um, but again, that can be a season four thing that that we we needn't go there at all. I think. Um, in fact, I, don't, I really don't think we're going to have time to. I don't want to waste. Uh, I don't, I don't want to waste Limbus on a, a you know a throwing that off and two minutes in the middle of a random episode this season. Um, but I didn't finish summarizing the the outlines here. So we had gotten to episode 12. Oh, pe- by the way, I just want to let you know that um, Dave is in Armenia. Oh, Armenia. <laughs> yeah, I just checked email and he had sent us a note that he said he forgot to let us know that he's in Armenia oh, at a conference. Right. Okay. So, I mean, I think that's a pretty decent excuse, okay. right? Okay, right. Yes, I'm in Armenia this week. Yeah, that does that does make some sense. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So anyway, yeah. Okay. Only cool. wait till there was a break in the proceedings just to let you know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Halfway across the planet. Yeah. Understandable. Okay. So right. So we're saying episode twelve. We have the arrivals, the rising of the moon. Fingolfin arises uh, from uh, arrives from the Helcaraxa. Uh, Kirden discovers the burnt ships. Sauron returns to Angband. An emissary from Angban offers to parley with the sons of Feanor, so we get the, the plan in place there to try to entrap the sons of Feanor, and Mithros accepts, and then uh, uh, 13, uh, hope and despair, despair and hope, the capture of Mithros, his brothers refuse terms for his release, Morgoth nails him to the cliff, Fingolfin reaches Mithrim, the rising of the sun, uh, Círdan's messenger reaches Thingol to tell him of the arrival of the Noldor. Yeah, I like it. That all, that all works really well. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Hakan, this is the latest version that we were given, so we're, we're we, you know, this can be refined. You know, I'm not. This slide isn't going to be the the permanent uh, fixture or anything. This is just what we're given to kind of go over the overall shape here. Um, so yeah, I I like this. I said there's a there's a non-zero chance that some things might develop in some different ways, or I might quibble with some points as we go. But on the whole, I'm really happy with this overall shape, um, and I like how it turns. My biggest question, in a sense, is going to be, I'm still. I think one of the challenges is going to be waiting until we get to episode nine for any serious battle. Um. Uh, so, like, for instance, what is the action of episode six? I mean, okay, the green ants, elves and ants arrive. That's going to be cool. But is that going to be, you know, an hour's worth of cool? 
with them just arriving and hanging out? Like, what's going on? Um, uh, if we're not having orc attacks, if we're not in battle with the orcs there, you know, how, what uh, what happens? So, uh, you know, making sure that we have... Uh, we're not too static in the first half of the season. But we'll, fix, we'll sort that out as we go through... Uh, individual episodes. Oh, well, you know, one of the things, and not to throw a monkey wrench into works here, but we also have the, um, the frame narrative. Yes. And, um, you know, I'm not saying we should go through and figure that out at this point, but, um, but I am thinking maybe there's, we could do a little bit of a trade-off if we have some episodes that, that are necessary to move the story along, but aren't necessarily super dramatic. The drama in that episode could be in the frame narrative mm-hmm. for that particular episode. You know, so, I mean, conceivable yeah. yeah 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 we can th- we can we can always take a little bit more time with that if we want to right um, right yeah yeah okay nick still wants to see fanor's wounding and his death separated into different episodes nick i'm going to take a lot of convincing on that one it's uh, honestly of uh, it's my number one item on my list of things that i'm not hugely happy with with this outline i don't uh i, I don't um i don't get it i don't get the move like let's have him mortally wounded and then give him like a super long Shakespearean, you know, death scene that goes and through into the, you know, to start a scene with him already wounded and then dying. Um, like Fanor's death and, and collapsing into dust kind of seems like an episode ending thing to me. Like I, I, that seems like a perfect episode ending thing. Well, actually the collapsing into dust and then the, I think the Oath of the Sons is a perfect episode ending thing because that's going to be so, so uh, big mm-hmm. from now on that you know, like the end of an episode is almost kind of like putting a period or an exclamation point on something. And it seems like the sun's oath would be yeah the place to end. Yeah, you know? especially if we tied into the frame narrative somehow to give some kind of foreshadowing, like and they were going to be sorry they did that, you know, or something like that. Right. Not that cheesy. Right. But, you know. Yeah. No. Exactly. I mean, it's it's um, we'll have to see. We'll have to see. I, 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 we'll see. We'll, we'll see. I, I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna have this argument now because no. we'll see what it feels like when we get there. Yeah, you know. Let's let's Brady see. Set aside a whole entire session just for this. Topic. <laughs> exactly. So we'll 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 get there, and you know, we'll see how it feels. You know, at, with the story as we're going through at that point. Um, I'm just again. I'm just. I'm. I'm not. I'm not sold on on uh, on the deal. Uh, just the whole idea of like. I'm mortally wounded. Credits roll. Okay, now I'm dying. Yeah. You know, like I, that, I, I'm not. That, it just, it doesn't. The concept doesn't sit well with me. But we'll see what happens. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll be convinced as we go through. Um, yeah. Uh, but um, okay. So anyway, uh, but I also, I'm tempted, Hakan, to follow up your suggestion. You know, Hakan's making suggestions about stuff that could happen in episode six. But let's wait until episode six because today. We're talking about episode three. Nobody can stop us from talking about episode three today, uh, because uh, I am not at all. I, pretty soon, people are going to begin to suspect that I just really don't want to talk about episode three. So, um, uh, anyway, I'm. Um, so let's totally let's totally do that. Um, so the first I wanted to settle, as I mentioned last time, I wanted to talk about some general things because. The most important thing that happens in episode three is reacquainting ourselves with Beleriand. It's been a long time, right? This is the first. So when 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 we shift back to Beleriand, we will not have seen these characters in almost a full season. I mean, it's been since episode six, as I recall, 
of season two that we met any of these characters. So we need to remember who these folks are. Um, uh, so we need to think about what is the court of thing like? Let's think, let's, let's, let's start by going through some of the, some of the, the, the people, right? Um, we have Thingol and Melian in Doriath in peace. Um, what's Thingol and Melian's relationship like on, on the regular, right? You know, we, we, we often make jokes about Thingol not listening to his wife, and of course, like, there are several prominent examples of that happening, but those are later, right? You know, I wouldn't want to make Thingol and Melian appear to have a dysfunctional relationship from day one, right? Um... And I also... Thingol is a really important character. I don't want to let him turn into Lord of the Rings Celeborn either. You know, I don't... I don't... I mean, there's no question that he married up, right? There's no question that his wife is more powerful than he is. But I don't want him to look like a sidekick in his court because I think this is even more important. I mean, I would kind of hope that we will succeed over time in actually rehabilitating Celeborn a little bit and having Celeborn's story being involved in these earlier sessions and everything so that Celeborn is a, an old character from the beginning that people are familiar with for years before, you know, he becomes Galadriel's sidekick in Lothlorien, um, I think might, will put a will put us in a different position when we finally get, we will see, you know, we will encourage our readers to look at Caleborn a little bit differently than the fellowship does essentially, you know, or the, the, than the fellowship is invited to. So, you know, it's interesting you said, cause the other side of it is in terms of thinking, I don't want him to turn into Ralph Cramden or for those of you that don't recognize Ralph Cramden, Fred Flintstone, is <laughs> right. a caricature of Ralph Cramden. Right. You know, that kind of loud blustery, you know, uh, that's also, it's almost like another, yes, not a spectrum, but you know what I mean? It's yes. like he could go that direction too. And I don't really want to do that. Yes. I do think that one of the things would be, you know, during peacetime, which I believe we're going to be showing starting at this episode is going to be, you know, Doriath in peace. Yes. He'll be, you know, benevolent and, and loving toward Melian. And, you know what I mean? It's when the stress comes. It's when the stress of the war and the stress of his, you know, his king, you know, kingship comes that we can see a change. Yes. Maybe. Yes. You know, kind of a mini fall, if you will. Yes. Yes. Agreed. Um, uh, I do think... Cause, Things start getting ugly for Thingol at the Baron and Luthien story, right? Right. Um, right. And you know that that's when he, but that's going to be an understandable fall, right? You know, we will see his his quite understandable protectiveness of his daughter against a mortal man. I mean, that's that's a big deal, right? A mortal man coming in and and uh, you know suggesting that he could wed his you know his daughter Luthien. So um, uh, again, as I say, that's. Um, that's a big deal, and, it's, and I think we can make that understandable. Um, uh, and I think it's important for us to to make that understandable. Um, so, oh, what was I? What was that thing I was going to say? Um, uh, um. Anyway, yeah, but but I agree. We need to show the good thing from which. He, his character and from which their relationship in a sense is going to be declining. Right. Um, I mean, because the thing is, 
I would imagine Melian still has free choice in terms of where she decides she wants to be, whether yeah. she wants to just go Maya and go, you know what I mean? It's like, why would she stay with a guy who's a jerk? Right. Um, at this point. You right. Know? <laughs> right. Yes. Um, exactly. So, yeah. That, so, I mean, we, we can't have, we can't have her, um, They have to be happy. Yeah, I mean, they have to be happy. They have to be like that. I I want, you know, I want Doria to be like a happy, well-adjusted place. Uh, Indeed, the challenge we have, you know, one of the one of the really interesting challenges is we have to make like the other Elvish paradise. You know, we kind of, you know, we did some work to sort of establish Elvish paradise over in Valinor, right? Um, Right. This is another kind of version, you know. This is like the alternative Elvish. This is Elvish paradise in Middle Earth, right? Under the blessing of one of the, of one of the Ainur, right? And, and Doriath is going to be what uh, Galadriel is going to try to make Lorien into. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, and so I think that we can have. The difference, obviously, is going to be the trees. We're not going to have Malorns right, uh, in right. um, uh, in Doriath. So it's for that reason, it's not going to look like it. It's not going to. It's not going to superficially look like Lothlorien. It'd be cool if the trees were silvery. What What are the white bark trees? Birches. Yeah. Beaches. Yeah. Yeah. You know, be kind of interesting. Silver Just beaches. Yeah. Visual. Nothing. You know, nothing said, but it's like. Instead, Doria's is full of white trees instead of gold, yeah. you know, yeah. trees. And by the way, I think that we should have um, the elves of Doriath uh, uh, living, at least in part, on flats and things. They shouldn't all live in Menegroth. Yeah, um, that's a great idea. Uh, so I think we should have a bunch of, you know, so in that way, actually, it can be kind of similar, um, that they're anticipating the Galothrim in those ways. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay. Um, so, okay, good. I see lots of agreement that we sh- that we should not have their marriage be a loveless marriage. Um, be, as Curid Cur- 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 reminds us, she chose him, right? And she chose him for a reason. Um, exactly. And she's not a moron, um, you know, who's immediately going to be like, oh, you know. Melian, like wisdom is the main thing Melian is known for, right? So we can't have it look like she made a really poor choice of husband, <laughs> you know, right? And have, have Melian be from day one, be kicking herself like, man, why did I saddle myself with this jerk? Um, so, uh, yeah, okay. Um, so, okay. David, I agree. Uh, uh, beach, uh, beaches are, are a little more robust than birch trees. Birch trees are too small to build flats in ah, or okay. anything. The so beaches would be. yeah, beaches would be, would be cool. So, um, uh, anyway, uh, so the way I think to handle, and this was, um, uh, as Hakon was just suggesting, uh, in the chat, the distinction Thingol is the lord of his people. Melian is a goddess who lives with them, <laughs> right? So they should be in awe of Melian, but there's no real question about who's the authority. This is, again, this is the difference. Uh, when thinking about the Caliborn and Galadriel thing and, and wanting to make sure that he doesn't, that Thingol doesn't end up looking like a, a sidekick, right? Um, because, and, and we, we have already set this up 
by focusing on you know the story that Tolkien tells about this the how that the, these people are devoted to the the reason what brought these this particular group of people together is that they were all so devoted to Elway that they remained behind to look for him right so when they find him they're happy and they follow him right then yes he's married a goddess and that's kind of cool but it's not like they're following her they're following him um, they're in awe of her they're very appreciative of her um, but he is their lord and the one that they came after in the first place. So um, I think that that dynamic seems, to, you know, so therefore there should be no question of her having authority. And I think one of the main differences, thinking again to like Goadriel and Celeborn in the Fellowship of the Ring, one of the main differences, she should talk less than Goadriel, basically. Um, Good point. The thing that makes the thing that makes Celeborn look like more of a sidekick is that Goadriel kind of takes over the conversation and then ends up monopolizing it, essentially. Um, and by the way, this was really interesting in the Treason of Isengard class just in the in uh, two weeks ago. We were looking at the, the, uh, the, the drafting of that scene, and it was so fascinating to see because originally Celeborn was the boss. It was like Celeborn and he has a wife, right? And almost all the lines that Goadriel has were Celeborn's lines. I mean, he carried the entire conversation in the very first draft of that encounter. And then as he revised it, he gave more and more, like he allocated more and more of the lines over to Goadriel until she, because, you know, uh, Celeborn's wife became the big deal and she very quickly expanded in Tolkien's mind into like this really big deal. Um But in the very first draft, it was actually Celeborn who was kind of the bigger deal. Um, it was originally the Lord of the Galathrim that they were going to that they were going to visit. So again, Melian, I th- I think it's going to be easy enough to um, uh, it's going to be easy enough to uh, have her not speak much. You know, have her be the quiet, be mostly advising him in private. Very rarely making any kind of public declaration. You know, uh, she'll talk to people as long as she's you know silent but she's not going to be speaking from the throne you know in authority again like Eladriel does when uh, when they come to when the fellowship comes before them um, when you know during a formal audience it's going to be Thingol who's running the show all the time and that's what everyone uh, that's what all the other elves there would expect and everything so so exactly Tony uh, and uh, Marie suggesting similarly she should be more like Mandos who may occasionally speak, but only rarely. And, uh, uh, and of course it gives her words more weight and therefore gives it more weight when Thingol dis, you know, disregards it and goes against it. Uh, so I think that's important. So Luthien, we do need to introduce Luthien, right? You know, this is, uh, this is, this is clear. Great question. Do we introduce her as a child or as an adult? I think she's got to be an adult. Um, we don't have time for her to grow up because um, we're not and it was one of the things we talked about last time we're having it we, by introducing Valerian the way that we are we're compressing the time frame um, so I don't think we have time for juvenile Luthien besides which if we introduce her as a child here and I mean she could be a child this whole season and then be grown up later on but I don't like I, I it adds you know we don't need the addition to this to the story. I mean, you know, it doesn't Yeah. And there's like a, you know, there's a, a sort of a non-zero chance that it could add a, a weird, like, 
you know, child molestation overtone to the Baron and Luthien thing when it comes. You know, we we don't we don't need that that image. Um, yeah, I mean, like if we see her dancing as a child, right, and then we see her dancing in exactly the same way, you know, as and then Barry and Baron, I, I just I, I'm not a big fan of that. And anyway, like I said, not that much time is not all that much time is passing here. I know we're going to get 400 years passing, but in Elvish terms, it's not all that much time passing. So yes, no, it's not, uh, young, young adult, uh, 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 Tony, besides which I don't really want to change actresses necessarily. So I, I think we just, yeah, um, we don't, we don't, uh, um, so I'm fine with having having Luthien as a young adult. She can be naive, Tony. I think that that's you know showing that her, um, um, uh, showing her, um, not really understanding. But, but of course, like everyone's kind of naive. Almost everyone is kind of naive, right? The only elves who like all of the elves of the younger generation. Um, Luthien is kind of a representative of them, right? There are some who have been there, right? Who were there uh, in the journey from Quivianen, right? We've got a bunch of Quivianen veterans. Um, definitely, Ke- you know, Thingol, definitely Celeborn. Um, and we had Beleg and Mablung as well, right? In that original cast uh, back in in season two, as I recall. Um, we had talked about Dairon as well, though I would consider making Dairon of the younger generation as well. Um, did we have, remind me, uh, O script writers, did we have... Uh, did we have Dairon? Um, did we do anything important with Dairon back in season two? I kind of don't think we did. Um, but uh, yeah, okay, so he wasn't in the older cast. Great, good. Let's have Dairon be in the younger generation too. So then we introduce Luthien and Dairon and introducing them together as a set, which is that's good, actually. I like introducing them as a set, because they are a set, right? He is, uh, uh, he's the boy wonder of, uh, of Doriath, right? Uh, the inventor of the runes, um, and the star musician, exactly. So, and he, the two of them are a matched pair. They should seem like, like, obviously destined for each other. He's the, the great musician, she's the great dancer, um, this should be, uh, this should be like the the biggest kind of no brainer, right? You know that the two of them—they're not married, they're not betrothed, but it, like everybody totally assumes that that's going to happen, right? Including obviously Dairon himself and possibly even Luthien herself. Um, though I I wouldn't want to have Luthien commit herself to that in any kind of explicit way, but um, but anyway, yeah, he's he's um, uh, so having him be. Uh, uh, be younger is awesome, and and for me, I think the images of Luthien. I, I think it's through Luthien and Dairon that we can most powerfully convey the sense of this elvish paradise in Beleriand. Um, you know. Dairon and Luthien off in the woods together, him playing and her dancing and flowers springing up beneath her feet as she dances. Um, that's, I think, you know, for me, that's kind of the snapshot of what this elvish paradise is going to be like. Um, yeah, yeah. So, Mariel says, so his sense of betrayal is somewhat justified. In a sense, again, I, we can't have her 
Luthien commit herself to him. I don't want any love scenes between the two of them. No hand-holding and, and uh, you know, we don't want her to be... We don't want to depict Luthien as being unfaithful to Dairon. But we can make it, like, make his presumption totally justified, right? Make his his commitment to her totally understandable and everyone else being shocked and appalled. Because everyone needs to be shocked and appalled when she shows up with Baron, right? And we have to make it clear that um, Luthien's choice of Baron is a shocking choice even to her, right? Um, and that, you know, fate has overtaken her and turned her in a direction that she herself never anticipated, right? So that needs to be, I think, a big important element of the Baron and Luthien story from the beginning. So yeah, so it's going to be hard because we don't want to make it look like they're promised to each other and we don't want to really be showing reciprocated romantic love between the two of them because, yes, then we have her looking fickle, right? Um, and um, and and him being... Act- so he's not actually wronged. It's just the thing that seemed destined to happen turns out not to be destined to happen and he can't handle it, right? But I think I want... Uh, I want him to be not unsympathetic. Um... Because here's one of the things. So, one of the things I struggle with in the published Silmarillion, one of the things that I never felt works. So, you know the passage where Dairon vanishes, searching for uh, for Luthien, and there's that there's that just a couple sentences about how Dairon is never seen again and his his you know his music passed from the world and and he was lost and you can tell from how that's described that we're supposed to we're supposed to, that's like that's a big deal right we're supposed to feel strongly about that like that's a tragedy that Dairon the great you know the you know possibly the greatest minstrel of all in the history of middle earth was lost um, in this way but I never felt it. Like, I, I could feel the urge to feel it, but I never felt it. Because I, Dairon was just like... I, I despised Dairon from when he, you know, betrayed Luthien and Baron. And I was so... You know, I was always... Like, my sympathies are always entirely with Baron and Luthien. Uh, and so Dairon just becomes the bad guy. So when he disappears, I have never been able to rid myself of the emotional reaction that says good riddance to Dairon because he was a jerk anyway um, and I would like to see if we could get away from that I, I would like to see if we could accomplish some kind of actual um, sympathy not, not just sympathy but to, so that his loss seems like a real tragedy you know it's it's a, because it's you know yeah yeah so I don't want to um uh, yeah, Nick says we're going to get angry uh, uh, preteen hate mail about this. Yeah, Nick, you know, honestly, if if there's like a, a group of like a, a large group of, of, of teenage girls who fall in love with Dairon and the actor who plays him and we get like you know, a fan subset of like Team Dairon uh, folks out there, like that's okay. I'm fine with that. Like I'm cool with that. I think that would actually be a success. Um, because again, I I do think that the story wants us to feel both things. Like it wants us to uh, not exactly sympathize with Dairon, but to um, 
to, to definitely to feel his loss. Um, so yeah, I, I think that we should, do, but, but we don't have to just make him a hero. I am okay. Um, I am okay with Hawkon's suggestion that maybe he's a bit conceited. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, David makes an interesting point. David Atley suggests that this could be a really interesting way for us to, to like, drive the first tip of the wedge between Thingol and Melian. That the match between Dairon and Thing and and uh, Luthien could be basically Thingol's plan, right? Like, uh, and yeah. Melian, and so he's appalled, as David suggests, when Baron comes in and Melian doesn't oppose it. You know, when she seems to be, like, mysteriously okay with it, or at least not against it, as he hopes that she will be. You know, he's hoping for some kind of statement from her, some kind of Mandos-like statement from her saying how this could not possibly be, and she and he doesn't get it, right? Uh, and Baron obviously even receives what seems to be encouragement from her, and so that that kind of misunderstanding couldn't be part of what uh, leads to Thingol's first you know, uh, misstep in his relationship with his wife and his, uh, in his overall career. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now, Tony, this is, that's a really interesting challenge. Um, uh, well, actually, hang on first. I want to address Hakan's comment. See, Hakan was suggesting we should see that he loves her in vain from the beginning. See, it's just, we're going to have to be really careful with this, but I don't want that. I don't want to show that she's not into him from day one. Um, I think she likes him. I think she loves Dairon. Um, she's just not going to marry him. She's not promised herself to him, and she's not going to marry him. Um, I, I think she's attached to Dairon. Uh, you guys, some of you may remember... Uh, uh, those of you who've read the Book of Lost Tales, if you remember studying it with me in the Mythgard Academy, um, originally, Dairon and Luthien were brother and sister. The initial conception of them was as brother and sister. That's why you get the, like, dancing, singing thing, right? Because they're, they're siblings, right? The, the musician and the dancer are siblings. Because um, uh, they're, they're sort of two sides of the same, of the same thing, right? Uh, two different aspects of the same function. Um, so having her have affection for him. Um, you know, a sort of a sisterly affection for Dairon. Um, I think that it should be shocking to everybody. Even shocking for the audience, to an extent. I think the audience should be fine with it. I mean, Nick, I'm like, bring on, bring on the, the like, you know, the teenage hate mail from people who, you know, who, who think that, um, uh, that she's done... Dairon wrong, like that—that's an appropriate reaction, I think, in many ways. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, and uh, but but again, I don't think we want. I, I agree. You know, several people are talking about how like sort of tragic it is that you know he loves her, you know, in a you know in a, a romantic erotic way, and she doesn't love him that way. I don't think we want to play up that tragedy. I, there's no tragedy with Dyer and Luthien. Um, the, the tragedy needs to come suddenly to the relationship of Dairon and Luthien. Um, I mean, we need to wait until we get Dairon standing 
staring with like wide eyes and open mouth at, you know, Luthien putting her hand in Baron's, right? Um, that, that even the, because we want that scene, that the moment when Luthien stops running away from Baron and turns back to him needs to be a shock, a complete shock to everyone. This has to be something nobody can see coming. Luthien doesn't see it coming. Dairon doesn't see it coming. The audience doesn't see it. I mean, they probably know that it's going to happen, but they shouldn't. It shouldn't be obvious. It, this should not be like. And now the romantic lead has entered, and he meets the. Like, it should not look like that at all. It should be absolutely, um, absolutely counterintuitive. Um, yeah. Yeah, and no, Nick, you're right. We don't we don't want to be uh, depicting the uh, the clever artsy guy being supplanted by the rough and uncultured jock. He's gonna look like a rough and uncultured jock, and that's how Thingol is gonna think of him and talk about him. But of course, remember, Nick, we will already have had Baron being the wounded, sensitive friend to the animals, vegetarian by choice. You know, come on, like no way, man. He's not gonna be like a rough and uncultured jock by the time we get there. Um, but, uh, anyway, um, so, so again, but so no tragedy. So I don't want any glimpse of unrequitedness. And, and this is where we come back to another Elvish thing. And Tony, this is what Tony brought up a, a, a little bit ago that I wanted to come back to. Um, I, as well, see the way that Tony said it was, where was it, Tony? Um, yeah, he says one of the things that makes human love so passionate, you know, and like impetuous is lack of time. Um, we should feel that they have literally all the time in the world. So there's no rush. Yes. An elvish courtship like this can last for centuries. They're not in a hurry. They're not dashing off to the altar. They're not going to be overwhelmed by their passions. Even, even Dairon is not going to be like, you know, Dairon singing his songs to Luthien, he's not going to be some medieval troubadour burning with passion, uh, you know, trying to convince his lady to have mercy on him before he dies, right, of, uh, of, of, of love for her. We, we can't... That's a human thing. This is another one of those moments where we get to try to depict how elves are different. Um, so, yes, there should be no... There should be no, um, uh, oh, good. Lydia thinks that that description made Baron sound dreamy. Good, Lydia, he should be dreamy. Like, that, that, that should be, you know, he, uh, but, you know, Luthien's reaction obviously is going to be negative. Anyway, let me not get too distracted in, in scripting season five before we get there. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, so, so showing Dyron and Luthien in this, this like non-dynamic state, right? Um, where they clearly love each other. They are clearly, they're, they are a matched set. Um, Thingol can even speak of looking forward to someday when Dairon and Luthien get married and, you know, and everybody kind of, you know, smiles in agreement and everything. Um, but their relationship is totally put that we don't want smoldering glances from Dairon as he's watching her dance. That's creepy anyway. Uh, and we don't want to encourage our, uh, we don't want to have any role model on the screen who is, uh, uh, you know, who is, uh, looking with, with prurient interest upon Luthien while she's dancing. Um, that by the way, is going to be a big challenge. Um, 
but it's something that we need to think about here, right? Luthien has to be beautiful, but not primarily a sexual... She, she should not be sexy. Not very... It's hard. Like, how do you make the most beautiful woman in the history of the world not sexy, right? Um, but exactly, Marie, that's Morgoth's role. When Morgoth is watching Luthien dance pruriently, right, um, uh, and conceiving in his heart an evil lust, um, that needs to be different, right, uh, and extremely creepy. Um, so we need to make Luthien gorgeous, but not sexual. Um, and her dancing should not arouse sexual desire. It should, it should, it should be, yes, Nick, joy, not lust is what we're going for here. Um, and uh, David, I agree. It's primarily a costume challenge. Certainly in costuming, we can't, um, uh, Luthien needs to be dressed very modestly all the time. Um, I, 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 it's, yeah. So this is, um, uh, well, also the actual challenging. dance move themselves can be subtly different between mm-hmm. what we see her do in Doriath and what we see her doing at Morgoth. I mean, she may on purpose with Morgoth be evoking that, you know, you know, experience. I, that, in the Book of Lost Tales, yeah. she totally does. Luthien oh, really? flirts okay. with Morgoth in the Book of Lost Tales. She absolutely does. She suggests that she left home because, you know, she kind of had other ideas. I mean, she is totally leading Morgoth on. I mean, it's just, she's, you know, it's, it's an act, right? But she, there, there is like a glimpse of coquette in Luthien's approach to Morgoth in the Book of Lost Tales. It's, to me, it's one of the most shocking moments in the whole Book of Lost Tales. But, um, uh, but anyway, yeah. I would like yeah. to see us do that, you know, because it would be like a major surprise to see her do that. <laughs> yes. Uh, as, yeah. After we've seen it be basically like a Netsunicello. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, don't, I, don't know, I don't know if I could, if I could handle it. I don't know if I could handle having, <laughs> ha- having Luthien vamp for Morgoth, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, maybe make it more subtle, you know, a little yeah. bit more hip sway. A little more, more yes, yes. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, it, it, it could be it could be subtle in some ways, but um, um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> Marie points out, well, she is dressed like Thorin Gwethel in that scene, so... Uh, she, <laughs> That's true. That's true, Marie. It could just be all the difference between doing her normal dance in her normal flowing medieval gown versus doing it in skin tight leather, right? You know, that could really just accomplish the entire effect that we're looking for there. Uh, that seems that seems quite possible. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's a really good a point. A Batwoman outfit, yes. Something, yes, exactly. Something like that. Um, uh, uh, we okay. Mariel saying, but we made Thorin Gwethel non-sexy too. Well, we made Thorin Gwethel not be. We didn't want her to be like a sexual attaché to Sauron, right? You know, we wanted to have him have an ally who was a female, but without being a sex pot. You know, just to, we, we we don't want to have every single female 
bad guy especially just be sexualized. Um, you know, we already did that with Ungoliant. Uh, we don't want to do it with everybody. So we were trying to depart from that stereotype of, of uh, you know, evil women are always sexy um, or like, you know, being sexy is part of being an evil woman. I mean, like that, that, that whole thing we wanted to, we wanted to step away from. And I think that was a wise idea, but that's not the same thing as Marielle is saying, when dressed up like Thuring Gwethel, Melian isn't sexy, <laughs> or, or uh, uh, Luthien isn't sexy. That's the point. The point is that Luthien gets sexy when she dances in, in Thuring Gwethel's uh, outfit. Um, uh, the main point, I think, is just that, uh, again, <laughs> exactly, Hakan, it's not that Thuring Gwethel is a sweet girl. Uh, she's evil. But the point is, she's not, she's not Sauron's girlfriend. You know, that's the number one thing. She's not like just on screen to be, um, you know, she's not trying to seduce Sauron. She's not, she's, you know, she's not, her sexuality is not her main weapon. Her brain is her main weapon as we, you know, she was the cunning one. Uh, you know, she is the, uh, she is the stealth ninja cunning. She is his Sauron's primary, you know, right hand person. Um, uh, you know, uh, she's his, 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 his main Lieutenant, um, you know, Dragluin and Tavildo, especially Tavildo, are unreliable, right? So, I mean, it's it's really it's really her that that uh, that he that he relies on, um, and their relationship should be non sexualized because again, we don't want to we don't want to go th- we don't want to go there with every female character. Um, I I think that's going to be an interesting thing is having there will be several. We will have several non-sexualized female characters whose lives don't re- don't revolve around relationships with men. Um, that seems like a perfectly fine thing to do. Um, uh, anyway, okay. Um, uh, yeah. Okay. Anyway, um, <laughs> several of you are making are making. Batman references that I don't get, so I'm not confident in in, in talking about them. Um, uh, anyway, okay. Where were we? Luthien. Dairon. Good. Back to episode three. Um, so, the main thing with Dairon and Luthien is to show them happy and making happy, happy being together, enjoying each other's company, taking joy in their music and their dancing. Um, Dairon as the boy wonder, you know, not only musical, but intellectual star of Doriath. Um, he's like the golden boy of Doriath. And, um, and so again, the, the sort of presumption that he's eventually going to marry Luthien can be explicitly in the air. But again, no passion, no, you know, uh, no unrequited love, no tension, no incipient tragedy, just joy, happiness. Everybody's happy to be together and, and, and they're complimenting each other and everybody likes to hear and see them. And that's great. Um, Beleg and Mablung. Let's differentiate Beleg and Mablung's characters. The two of them are kind of joined at the hip. Um, it's easy enough, of course, to have, like, Mablung is the melee fighter and Beleg is ranged fighter, right? But, like, to have Beleg be the hunter, primarily the stealthy hunter, um, uh, the, you know, the, he's the, the most woodscrafty of all of them, and uh, uh, Mablung is, the, is the, 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 the bigger tough guy. Mablung, I would think, would be like the military captain. Where you know Beleg is 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 a prominent leader too, but he was like you know Beleg is the scout and Mablung is the uh, is is the captain. I'm thinking Mablung should be the one who is really the 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 primary 
I think Mablung should be Thingol's number one guy. Unless we want to make Celeborn Thingol's number one guy. Um, so what is Celeborn's role? Um, Mike earlier on uh, suggested that we should depict Celeborn as sort of quietly competent, like very reliable and good at at everything he does. I kind of like that. What if Celeborn is sort of one of Thingol's most trusted advisors? Right? So he's more of a you know, he's put it more in the role of like, well, he can, he can fight too. I think we, we want to show Celeborn in combat. Um, but he's not primarily military. So Mablung is the primary military leader, uh, of Doriath. Beleg is the chief hunter and scout and woodsman and Celeborn is chief advisor. Um, and, uh, yeah, Nick, I agree. Beleg is more the maverick. He's not like the, I shall lead the troops charging into battle. Um, he, yeah, would go off on his own more, and I think we can show him there. Yeah, David Atlee says Beleg is special forces and Mablung is the regular army. Yeah, okay. I, I can get behind that. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Nick, exactly. Celeborn can be Thingol's uh, con- conciliary. Yeah, that's exactly it. That's 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 my thought there. Um, and but, but Hakan, I agree, he should have some outgoing fighting years before Galadriel arrives. Yeah, he he shouldn't look like, you know, the guy who never goes out into battle. Of course, Thingol should go out into battle too. Um, but, um, but yeah, so establishing him as, uh, as wise and remember the thing that Goadriel says about him in the Fellowship of the Ring, how he is the giver of gifts. Um, it would be interesting if we could work something along those lines in as well. Um, have him be a gift giver at some point, not, necessarily in this episode, but just kind of thinking about his character. Um, if, uh, you know, if that's something that he, you know, is able to, is able to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Nick is suggesting he's Thingol's herald, like Elrond was the herald uh, to Gilgalad. Sure, yeah. Have him standing next to Thingol, holding his standard in battle. I can totally see Celeborn doing that. Mablung would be, you know, sort of leading the charge. Um, uh, but Celeborn would be right there standing next to Thingol and helping defend him and stuff. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I know David gift-giving is reserved for the king, and he does that when he's lord and everything. I'm, so I'm not saying that like he's there distributing gifts, because you're right, that would have him supplanting Thingol's role. I just, that line just kind of popped into my head, and so I'm kind of thinking about setting that up, because there are some other ways in which we could set that up, but... Um, ooh. Wow, that's a really good point, Tony. Tony points out another couple characters that we never considered that we need to think about. Namely, Orifer and his son Thranduil, who are Sindar. Right? Yeah, Tony, I literally didn't think of that at all. Um, uh, wow. Um, Nick, it could be a later generation, but we do need to think about when they come in. It's, I'm, I'm totally okay. Like, Orifer doesn't have to be a, a Quivianan elf or anything. So, it's okay to make them younger. And Thranduil can be a boy. 
I don't know. We could get away with not introducing them here at the beginning. But we need to introduce them sometime before the fall of Doriath, and if so, when? Could we introduce Orifer? Maybe Orifer and Thranduil can play a role in the fall of Doriath. Like, they can come in. We can give them some kind of job. Yeah, because at that point, we're running out of other folks, right? Because, like, Celeborn will have moved away with Galadriel, and Beleg's dead, and Dairon's gone. So we will be running out of minor characters, you know, supporting cast in Doriath by the time we get to the fall of Doriath. Um, so we could introduce, we could wait to introduce Orifer and Thranduil there. And they could be with Dior, yes, Nick, after, even after the death of Thingol, we could have Orifer be one of Dior's people. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hakon wants us to introduce Galathil, the father of Nimloth, who's going to marry Dior. Maybe. I don't know that we need to make him a big player at this stage. Yeah. You know, Hakon, what I'm tempted, though? Because, see, I'm tempted to do a little conflation here. Wouldn't it be just easier to give Nimloth a different dad? What if we made Nimloth the daughter of Mablung? Or somebody. Somebody else. I was going to say Beleg, but that's a little too tragic. I mean, though can you be too tragic in the Silmarillion? But no, it's not too tragic. The reason I'm resistant to having her be the daughter of Beleg is, is it's almost a little too wish fulfillment, right? Like to think of like, Beleg might have died, but he left a legacy behind him. Like, and, and I'm, I'm suspicious of my motivations there. Um, ooh, that's interesting, Hakon, making Nimloth and Thranduil siblings have, have, have her be the daughter of Orifer. That's interesting. Of course, then we have a close kinship between Elrond and Thranduil, which might be closer than we... There are going to be third age consequences to that, if because that makes Thranduil and Elrond what second cousins, something like that. That's my. I mean, I like the idea, um, but I'm I'm a little I'm a little worried about Legolas being that close akin. Um, now David Attlee makes another great suggestion about um, Nimloth and Celeborn you know is the kinship between them important Um, they can't be too closely akin because we don't want Elrond and Celebrian to be too closely tied together but if Nimloth yeah, that's tough. That's tough. Um, 
Uh, yeah. Um. <laughs> Brianna is right. You know, Brianna says, uh, you know, Thranduil never felt equal or, or close to that lofty circle of elves. He just wished he was. But Brianna, in part, that seems to me a, an artifact, right? I mean, that seems to me a a consequence of the fact that Thranduil was basically sort of Thingol recycled for the Hobbit, right? You know, he's sort of like Thingol light recycled for the Hobbit and then integrated later on and, you know, and so therefore made a, you know, a lesser son of greater sires. Um, in a Silmarillion context, Thranduil is not even an, well, he's very after afterthought. He's an after afterthought, right? Um, from a Silmarillion perspective. I guess I don't have a huge problem with kind of promoting him and making him into a bigger deal. That would kind of set things up interestingly. I guess if... If Nimwath is the sister of Orifer... So I'm just trying to think through the family tree here. If she's the sister of Orifer, then Dior... No, wait. She's the sister of Thranduil. She's Thranduil's sister. If she's Thranduil's sister... Sorry, I'm getting all confused here. If she's Thranduil's sister... That makes Thranduil two generations up from Elrond? Golly. I was thinking of making Thranduil no more than Elrond's peer. But yeah, yeah, exactly, Mike. So so Dior would then be Thranduil's nephew. And Dior would therefore be Legolas's cousin. And so Legolas would be... So Dior and Legolas are cousins. That would make Legolas... Elwing's first so he would be first cousin so Legolas would be first cousin twice removed from Elrond and Legolas would be older than Elrond I have a hard time with that I have a hard time having Legolas be older than Elrond now we can have Thranduil wait a really long time for Legolas to be born Legolas could be born in Mirkwood um, but yeah, Mariel, that's exactly the problem I'm having. That if Legolas is higher up on the family tree than Elrond, I, I, I that's kind of blowing my mind. I'm really, I'm, that's that's hurting my head. Uh, I don't know that I can handle that. I'm kind of inclined to have Orifer be the sort of younger generation advisor to Thingol in the latter days. Um, and he still sticks around and is an advisor, is more of a peer. Orifer is sort of a peer with Dior, but he doesn't have any children. Legolas isn't born. And then he, uh, Orifer and Thranduil. Thranduil himself isn't born. And Thranduil is a boy. I, I'm imagining Orifer fleeing with juvenile Thranduil across the mountains after the death of Dior. So, 
when that happens, yeah, Orifer and Thranduil, and Thranduil can be young. And then Legolas isn't born until later on. He's born in Mirkwood. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. And Brianna, yeah, you're right. We we do get to get the story of like who's Legolas's mom, right? He doesn't have a mom, so like who is his mom and where does she come from? Um, she would have to be an Avari or at least a Nandor, Brianna, right? Um, I mean, those would really be the only options over there. So, um, yeah, yeah, exactly, Marielle. Orifer comes in with the Nag- with the Nauglamir story. Yeah, he, he's 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 um, part of that story. That's where he would he would be introduced. Okay, yeah, yeah. Let's push Thranduil and thing. So that means I'm kicking the can on Nimloth. Um, I don't think we need her yet. Because if she is going to be the daughter of somebody else, like Mablung or Beleg or somebody like that, we don't have to introduce her yet. She can be a kid. Yeah, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> I guess I know. Episode three. We're totally getting there. This is important. We're, this is, this, we're officially already talking. We're not talking about the plot of episode three, but this is the concept of episode three. We've got to get our characters down, right? Come on. Give me a break. Um, okay. Okay. Um uh, good. Um, and uh, and I agree with Brian uh, Dimmick's suggestion that uh, Marie passed on here. The Thingol's court itself could be quite simple. He doesn't need a lot of retainers or ceremony surrounding him. And as time goes on, he's corrupted by pride in the Silmaril. And we see him placing himself more at the center of Doriath and expecting the attention of a court. Um, yeah, Brian, wouldn't it be cool if being brought in before Thingol, when Baron is brought in before Thingol, that's a, like a, not exactly unprecedented, but a really big, like, Thingol doesn't normally do that, so the whole, like, uh, you know, Hall of Judgment thing that he does to Baron can be, um, uh, can be, um, him acting out of character already basically um can be showing him having a a not good response to uh, um to baron and the whole situation so um uh so yes uh the it can be casual cuz there's not a whole lot of need for you know there's you know, there's not a lot of crime, you know, they don't, it's, they, they, there's, there's not a whole lot that needs looking after in their kingdom, you know, this is, uh, um, uh, yeah, and Tony, we will see them, as you say, forming more of a council of, you know, they, they, they do a kind of a council of war thing, right, but it's not really, a, it's still not a formal, like, and now the king is, is sitting in his throne, he shouldn't even have a throne, really, um, um, I think that would be fine if he didn't have a throne, um, I'm not saying he, he needs to like construct ha, have a ha, have a throne quickly constructed so that Baron can be brought before it, but um, but I don't think that he uh, he really uh, focuses on that. Um, okay, 
Hey, let's do another slide. Um, so we've talked a little bit about the culture of Doriath, but just sort of segueing into that a little bit more. Um, just a few thoughts. These are thoughts from the discussion boards. Contrast between the Havens being a town and Doriath being a widely scattered people. Yeah, and I, I would love to see them up in the trees, right? I would love to see some, um, some, uh, uh, some, some, some flats. Um, and ladders and things, but yeah, very, very, very casuals. Where very casual, whereas yes, the havens are a town. You you will have buildings and streets and things at the havens. You know, that's a little known elvish child game: flats and ladders. Flats and ladders, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's it. Um, uh, yeah, so the court moving from place to place. They shouldn't have. Uh, there there shouldn't be anything. Special. They shouldn't have a palace of some kind pre-Menegroth. Um, Menegroth should be the first center that they really have. I think that's totally fine. How much agriculture are they doing? None. None. Um, I'm okay with none. Uh, so they're basically gathering from... Yeah, they're gathering from the forest and hunting. They're gathering and hunting. Um, I would think that would be fine. I don't think there need to be grain fields. Um, the, uh, at the Havens, they can have fields. They can, they can be growing grain, um, at the, in the town. Um, but, uh, yeah. So yeah, fruit and nuts, David, absolutely. That's totally fine. Um, uh, Karita wants to know what an elf party looks like. This is a, this is a crucial question, Karita. I agree. Um, how much drinking? Lots. But of course, the drinking just, you know, it leads to merriment and not, but, you know, so, uh, they get a little more tra la la uh, you know, the more they drink. Um, that seems to me what happens to elves, right? Um, I'm, uh, Totally comfortable, by the way, with the idea that when Bilbo and the dwarves arrive at Rivendell, um, those um, the elves that they meet have been uh, have been partying for some time. I'm, I would be totally fine with that concept. But um, yeah, so um, I think that they yeah the, 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 at the Havens, Tony, they certainly should be they should be fishermen uh, at the at the Havens. Uh, definitely. Um, there can be some trade between them, right? You know, they, they, they can be sending the, uh, like, they could bring, you know, meat from the, from Doriath to the, you know, they could, they could ship, um, uh, meats to the, to the, to the havens and fish back to Doriath and stuff. So, you know, that all seems, uh, that all seems perfectly fine. Um, now David is saying, where do they get alcohol if they don't have grapes or grain. <laughs> you can have you can you can you can make liquor out of fruit. Uh yeah. Yeah. Wild barley. Yeah. Oh and pearls, Hakan. Yeah, we need to we need to have the pearls. We need to emphasize the pearls. Um we need to set that up so that we can barter pearls with dwarves uh in season two. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we do need to remember the, the pearls. Um, yeah, yeah. No, they're, yeah, they're, they're, they're wild grains they can use. There's, there are fruits that they can use. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Um, I'm not going to worry. I'm not going to worry about where they get their booze from. Um, uh, 
Lots of leisure time for the arts and feasts is a regular part of daily life. Yes. And I do think the whole like movable feast thing um, that when we see Thranduil uh, and his people like having their woodland celebrations in Mirkwood uh, in come Hobbit time, that should be recalling what we should be seeing there is like basically Thranduil and his people trying in the third age to recapture some of this life of peace that they lived in Doriath uh, before the orcs came. But of course, they're living it sort of under siege, right? As Mirkwood is changing and and, uh, and the spiders are encroaching and all that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, good. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I agree, Hakan. We're not going to be spending a lot of time on food production, but it's good to have these things worked out, right? It's good to be doing this kind of sub-creation. Um, that's interesting, David. David's, uh, David Atlee says, do we want to see the Hall of Fire concept invented in Doriath and passed down? No. David, I think the Hall of Fire should be a Gondolin concept. I think that Elrond should get it from his Gondolin heritage. I'm thinking the Hall of Fire is a Pengalod thing. That's what I'm thinking. Um, whereas in Doriath, they're much more into, like, songs and dancing in the open air. Yep. Yeah. Great question, though. Awesome question. Um, Festival in Nan Elmoth celebrating hunting in Orome. Um... Uh, well, sure, they can. I mean, they live in the forest and they hunt a lot, so celebrating Orame seems like a sensible thing for them to do. Okay, let's go up to Angband. So, first, let's talk about the nature of the orcs. And Hakan, let's address the question that you were raising before. I was saying. Uh, uh, that I want the the like dispersed soul of Morgoth's power to be a season four thing, and you were like, "But doesn't he do that in you know in this very episode?" Uh, yes, the beginning of it. Um, but because so they're, 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 when I was talking, okay, here's what I was talking about with the season four thing. What I want to show in season four is. Morgoth in an arms race. He's not in an arms race yet, right? This is just him, like, twisting the orcs and being like, okay, they're not angry enough. I want them angrier. Right? Um, So he changes the concept of the orcs from what Sauron was trying to build. And, and, And doubtless he does put some of himself into them to make that happen. But we're not going to see the effect of that. The like Morgoth weakening himself—that's not going to be on the. T- it's not going to be an issue. No one's going to be talking about that. Um, that's not going to be a, a concern. Sauron can perceive that, and we can have some conversations between Sauron and his and his minions, right? Between Sauron and his team about like what's going on with the big guy, right? Um, but that's not until season four. So if, if it happens here, it's not apparent. Um. And, uh, uh, yeah, so, um, so it, it becomes apparent during the arms race, which happens later on. So, um, what I think we, we want to show happens. So did we decide we probably did and I've forgotten Sauron's orcs, what were they like? He, I remember we talked about, um, he was trying to, uh, you know, Sauron's goal 
um, was to make followers, right? To, you know, he wanted to create worshipers and servants and allies rather than slaves, uh, rather than slaves or soldiers. Um, that was his plan, right? And then, and then Morgoth comes back and he's angry, right? Morgoth comes back in a, in a, in a, in a very bad mood, uh, and says, no more. I want these to be like the instruments of hatred. I want, and so he twists orcs into the hateful, um, uh, uh, angry, uh, loving torture, you know, just like, I, I want to inflict as much pain as possible. Um, yeah. So as Hakon says, from, from like elf zombies to real orcs or, or, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Mariel, that's an interesting suggestion that if Sauron had had his way, the orc, the, the corrupted elves would have become something more like the, the idea of the drow, right? The, you know, that the evil elves, um, then they would have been like orcs. Um, sure, I can see that. Like that was the that was sort of the 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 direction uh, that that could have been sort of going there. Um, and then yeah, Morgoth adds uh, adds hatred to the recipe. Stirs in a healthy dose of dose of hatred and anger. Um, and Bulldog will be commissioned. Right, he will uh, uh, he will come in and. Um, uh, um, establish Bulldog. So Bulldog is a spirit of wrath and violence. I really love that phrase. That yes, exactly. Um, and Sauron should be a little bit sort of looking askance at Bulldog. He should be really cautious about Bulldog. Like, who is this guy? Has he been? Is like, is he here to? You know, why did he make a new captain? Um, but I, I think the function of Bulldog in this episode, um, when we meet Bulldog, should be like when we see Bulldog being established. He's not created. He's not going to be corrupted because he's already a spirit of corrupt. He's going to be embodied is what he's going to be. He's going to take uh, this spirit uh, of wrath named Bulldog and he's going to embody him in an orc body. Uh, Morgoth is. Um, and so... This is our opportunity to sh- to have exposition of what the orcs are and what the orcs are going to be, um, and so this spirit, this spirit of wrath and violence, is you know Morgoth explains that he wants to infuse the orcs with this spirit, um, and um, yeah, 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 that essentially, yeah. Um, ooh, Tony says that. Uh, um, uh, bulldog, uh, like the, the, the Maya spirit that is Bulldog should be a fallen Maya of Tulkas. Uh, that's, that's a really interesting concept, Tony. Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's perfect, Tony. Just as Tulkas takes delight in combat, right? He takes delight in tests of strength and, uh, uh, and laughs as he, uh, as he runs, as he, you know, runs into battle. Um, so Bulldog, you know, and the orcs delight in battle, but they delight in slaughter. You know, they delight in killing things. It's not just delight in the physical test, right? 
and of course the physical stamina of orcs and their ability to run, for example, for long distances without slowing, um, is like Tolkis as well. So yeah, I like that. I like that. Um, how do we bring him in? Um, okay, so oh, Nick is saying we did we had an intro for Bulldog in episode one. That's good. That's good. That's good. Yeah. Um, I think that so you know David is saying does Bulldog assume a shape he finds intimidating and the other orcs are forced into a shape following him? Uh no, David, I would say the shape of the orcs is Morgoth's doing. He twists them, right? So we have these the elves the the corrupted elves that Sauron was working on, I think can still be beautiful actually. Um but uh but I think that that, but then Morgoth twists them, and they become they're in, when they're full full of hatred and rage, that becomes manifested in their outward ugliness, um, and so they they become physically twisted. And then David, Bulldog, when Bulldog is embodied, he Morgoth sort of you know pushes him to embody himself when he he's embodying the same sort of wrath and anger, so he takes the same shape as they. But they sort of in that sense, they're first, I think. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting, yeah. Tony says, it's like an evil version of Melian in the sense that she took the shape of an elf to marry Thingol. Yeah, in a sense. In a sense. Um, yeah, so uh, Nick, remind me of what what, uh, what of Bulldog did uh, did you guys cover in episode one? Um, but anyway, yeah, I'd be interested to hear that. I don't even remember what I said about Bulldog in episode one. So... Um, Morgoth put, so Bulldog, not a political player, right? He's not, he's, you know, we don't have a triumvirate, uh, uh, there under Morgoth in Angband. It's still just Sauron and Gothmog who are the lieutenants of, uh, Morgoth. And Bulldog is given, uh, is, uh, placed under the orders of Sauron. How well do they work together? Well, none of the bad guys work particularly well together. Um, but, uh, Ooh, that's interesting. Rickola is wondering if Melian should be familiar with Bulldog's former Maya self. Uh, uh, maybe we would have had to set that up though. Yeah. Not sure about that. Um, yeah. Okay. Also, Nick, so you have him embodied already. And Sauron has one of his uh, proto-orcs, one of his sort of drow elves with him, and the elf reacts with open revulsion and Bulldog murders him. Okay, that's what you put into to, to episode one. Okay. All right. Getting out his anger, right? Uh, and then Morgoth. So Morgoth's going to come in and twist them. So we're going to have the... Okay. All right. I, I can work with that. You guys can make this happen. Uh, it's fine. But we don't want him plotting. Bulldog doesn't plot against Sauron. Bulldog sometimes does his own thing. Like, he'll rebel against... Like, I, I think that... Uh, Bulldog... I'm thinking, essentially, of a bigger version of Shagrat, essentially. He follows orders, and he does what he's forced to do. Um, but left to himself, he's going to serve himself, and he's going to follow... So I, I would think that Bulldog would sometimes follow his own initiative 
to do what the heck he wants to do, and Sauron might not always be pleased with what he chooses to do. But he's not going to plot. He's not going to. He's not going to. You know, try to overthrow anybody. He just sometimes, uh, you know, goes off the leash essentially. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Yeah, Kurita says taking orders to hurt things and people. Sure, teamwork. No, yeah, exactly. He's not really a team player. Um, but, uh, you know, he's, but, but he will also react to fear. I mean, he's been told, Morgoth tells him to do this and, um, and more, we, we might have to show Morgoth having to beat him down at some point. Um, uh, we may have to show Sauron having to beat him down at some point. Um, but, uh, because he, that's the way he would be kept in line is through fear. But, um, anyway, yeah. Okay. Um, do we see orcs in episode three? Yes. I think that has to be the, 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 you know, we're going to be setting up, we're going to be reminding everybody of characters and showing Doriath and, and be like, Hey, look, there's Luthien and there's Dairon and they're a big deal. And, you know, so there's going to be a lot of that, uh, in the, in the sort of central middle part of this episode, but the, the drama of this episode comes in when they encounter orcs. And I think it should be Beleg, um, in one of his, you know, scouting hunting, you know, so Beleg and a, a few of his hunters who encounter, um, orcs, uh, first. And that definitely, that definitely needs to, needs to happen. So orc encounter, um, uh, by Beleg, but remember, <clears throat> they, The elves of Quivianen will remember the Dark Rider. They will remember days of fear. One of the crucial elements of episode three has to be this peaceful time in Doriath. They think they have escaped. They believe that they have established, especially now that Melian is with them. My goodness, right? They were pretty sure that they escaped the danger around Quivienen when they settled down here. And now, like, they've got Melian living with them. So now, you know, not only have they found their lord, but they found their lord and his goddess wife. Um, so they believe that Doriath is inviolate. And not, not just that it's inviolate, but that there is no danger, right? Um, they, they don't think that there are any bad guys. Um, so, um, uh, so yeah, so so we need to have the reaction when they meet the orcs should not be like, oh no, an enemy. It should be like the fact that these things are enemies should take a while to filter in. Um, they should they should have to. Uh, this is a shock to them that there are creatures like this, and I suspect that their reaction would be Beleg's reaction would be. Um, to think that they're probably just like some rogue thing. Like we need to, you know, the reaction to this would not be military action because they don't suspect that there's going to be military action. The reaction should, this should be hunting. Like we, we know these things are dangerous. And so apparently there are these like little monsters in the woods now, and we need to make sure that none of these monsters come anywhere. So we're going to, Beleg is going to protect the, the, the sanctity of, you know, the little elvish paradise that they have built. Um, and he's going to become a hunter of orcs. Um, but, um, yeah, <laughs> Marielle's thinking like, you know, those creatures are unlovely, but you know, so are many things, right? Like boars, boars are unlovely too. That doesn't mean they're evil. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, 
but see, Hakan, I'm thinking when they meet them, these are Morgoth orcs. So I don't think that these are, uh, I mean, I remember the suggestion that what they're meeting are proto-orcs. I don't think they meet proto-orcs. I don't think proto-orcs ever go out into the wild. The proto-orcs are with Sauron, and they get taken over. They're not sent out. When they get sent out, they are sent out for destruction, or some of them just go out for destruction. They're full of, you know, when after Morgoth fills them with anger and hatred, um, some of them head out and start killing stuff. Um, so there's not been a... Because, again, like, military discipline, not really big for orcs, right? They don't obey very well. They can be cowed, right? They can be intimidated. Um, remember the whole, like, I'll report your name and number to the Nazgul thing, right? Orcs have numbers in Mordor. Um, you know, that Sauron system. So, hey, that Sauron system, that should probably be the system that he... he we should show him having to institute that system. I know, I'll give them all numbers. Anyway, um, but the point is, um, they have to be kept in line. They're always going to be un, uh, 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 unreliable servants. Um, so the orcs that Beleg meets, I think, in episode one are just some wandering orcs who shouldn't be there. Um, but they've kind of, they've, they've escaped the main orc enclave, uh, and are, um, you know, are, are, Sauron would certainly have preferred to just unleash them all at once in an organized army, uh, so that the elves are completely unprepared. So Sauron is going to get irritated, I would think, when he hears that some of the orcs have wandered out and, and the elves have encountered them. Um, Sauron is going to be miffed about this. And, and maybe this is what leads him to beat up Bulldog in the first place. I don't know. Um, or the first time. But he definitely... Uh, um, this is... Uh, so, so I think that when they meet orcs, the orcs should be official orcs. They shouldn't look different from future orcs. These are, these are the official orcs. This is just the first wave of the army escaping and going off and doing their own thing and blowing uh, Sauron's plan for surprise, essentially. Um, the spell of bottomless dread. Does Morgoth use a spell of bottomless dread on the denizens of Angband? Okay, so for those of you who don't understand that question, the spell of bottomless dread is another unfinished or uh, uh, book of lost tales thing. Um, no. Uh, that phrase has to be used because the spell of bottomless dread. I mean, that's got to be a thing. It's a it's a really uh, it's a really creepy thing. But the spell of bottomless dread is what is um, when the Noldor who are captured, like elves who are captured and enslaved in Angband, they are placed under the spell of bottomless dread. That's what ties their wills to to Morgoth. And by the way, that's going to be really fascinating to do. Right? Remember that like one line that we get about how when some of the prisoners from Angband escape and they're not trusted by their families and sometimes for good reason, right? Think of all the stories that that one sentence gives us the opportunity to tell, right, in future seasons. Uh, That's going to be really, really interesting to try to depict the atmosphere of Beleriand in those latter days. Um, But anyway, we're not there yet. So I want to save the spell of bottomless dread until Morgoth gets elf captives uh, of his own. Um, we what we want to emphasize with the orcs is not bottomless dread, but sheer enslavement. 
um, that they are being twisted and warped in the way that Morgoth wants them and wound up to do what he wants them to do. Um, but leading an army of orcs is still... Well, it's not like hurting cats, because cats will simply disregard you, and the orcs won't disregard them. Um, you know, the hurting cats metaphor is, is, uh, is, uh, is quite overdone, and therefore, you know, it's, it's overused, and as most overused uh, similes or metaphors do, it becomes sloppily extended to things that don't really, that are not captured by the original metaphor. Um, uh, yeah. So that's not what it's like. Um, Tony says it's more like a pack of hunting dogs. Yes. Um, or like... Yeah, Nick, I agree. The spider campaign is more like herding cats. Yes, getting a whole bunch of spiders going in the same direction is like herding cats. Especially, remember, Shelob is Sauron's cat, right? Uh, that's... Um, uh, that's, uh, that's there, uh, in the Lord of the Rings, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Yeah, so the enslavement of the orcs to make them, um, I'm just thinking of, sorry, the phrase that just kind of cropped up in my mind. Again, I'm thinking of the orcs, Sauron's orcs being twisted. The phrase that just came, remember, uh, Myron, is an is a is a is a Maya of Aule, right? Remember Aule's desire, him making the dwarves because he has the desire to have learners to whom he could teach, right? I think that that impulse is there in Sauron too, and it's warped so that instead of just making learners whom he can teach, he's also making um, he's making like worshippers, you know, who will worship him. So that's uh, um it's already twisted, but we can still see that compared. He's not trying to make slaves. You know, he's not, he's not just trying to, uh, 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 dominate their wills entirely. Um, not at this stage of Sauron's life. He'll do, he'll be, he'll get to there, but when he gets there, he'll be a shadow of himself, right? Early Sauron here, whose feet are now firmly on the path of evil, but he's not unrecognizable yet, right? So we should show him having an almost like mentor kind of relationship. But again, not it's still corrupted, right? So they, they worship him and he encourages them to worship him. But um, but they're like his protégés more than they are like his slaves. Um, and then Morgoth comes in and makes them into just brutal, savage uh, uh, hate-filled uh, slaves of his own will and his own desire to conquer. Um, and Sauron obviously thinks that this is a waste. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, cool. Okay, uh, Hakan, here's the summary of episode three. Okay, an outline of episode three that you did a while back, um, just to sort of have some talking points here. Um, So let's see Hakan's suggestions here. We begin with the Noldor and the Storm of Uinen, yes. So we we will see, I think we start with the Lamentations of the Teleri, right? And then we go to Uinen and we see her... 
uh, tears and, um, uh, you know, that uh, a scene maybe even in which Ase tries to restrain her. We talked about Uenin, uh before. Uh, so we get this, um, uh, we get the, we get the storm, we get the wrecking of many of the ships. We need an end point to that. Where, uh, where can that scene end? What do we want to finish with, with the Noldor before we shift and go to Beleriand? We need some kind of transition. We can't just end in the middle of the storm. We can't cut from the storm because then we're giving the impression that they're all going to get wrecked, right? Which they're not. We need to show that some of them survive. Um, I think we need to end that with a meeting. I mean, they need to be escaping. I think we need to have Fingolfin and Feanor meet. Um, Feanor is going to make capital off the storm, right? For his leadership purposes. You know, Feanor is going to make a speech saying, see, the Valar are trying to stop us, but, like, we can't be stopped and we will continue on and we are going to... um, he would do his, like, let's go back to Middle-earth where we can have wider realms kind of talk again. That could be the transition. So, like, that, you know, we get Feanor talking about his vision of the kingdoms that they that they will rule in peace and splendor over in Middle-earth, and that can be the transition to the quite different kingdom, not quite like what Feanor was describing that we get over there. So we see, hey, look, there are already elves in peace over in Middle-earth. Um... Fingolfin can emphasize something like how uh, difficult the journey is going to be and how this is not the last hardship that they're going to face before they get to Middle-earth. Um, you know, something something nice and uh, foreshadowing like that, uh, and then we can transition from there. Um, ooh! Oh, Tony, I love that idea! Oh my goodness! Oh, oh, Tony, that is so brilliant. Okay, here's Tony's brilliant suggestion. Um, we had talked about incorporating the breaking of Fingolfin's sword into the into the battle on the bridge. Um, but Tony's suggestion, this is even better. Um, uh, Tony says, what if in this meeting, Fingolfin draws... So we recapitulate the scene where Fingolfin draws his sword against Feanor, right? Or it looks like, like we're visually recapitulating it. It looks like he's drawing his sword on Feanor, but Fingolfin draws his sword and breaks it, right? Um, I kind of love the breaking of, like, Fingolfin breaking his sword uh, as the sort of point of transition uh, to... Um, to Beleriand. That's really neat. I love that. Um, yeah, no, Nick, Finarfin doesn't break his sword. Finarfin chucked his sword away. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't break his sword. Um, so yeah, so Finarfin um, might have his sword in hand when he, you know, he hears before he sees anything, right? He hears clamor and he draws his sword and, and as soon as he sees what's happened, he just chucks his sword away and runs down. 
Um, so yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Finarfin does not break his sword. Fingolfin breaks his sword. But yeah, Tony, I love that scene with the 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 the, the recollection of the strife between Fingolfin and Fanor. So it's another foreshadowing thing, both a recalling of the earlier scene and foreshadowing of future strife. But yet it ends so emphatically differently with uh, with Fingolfin breaking breaking his sword. I love that. That is brilliant, Tony. Okay, all right. So we finish with the Noldor. So we go back to the court. So now we, we so we got Thingol and Melian in their court, and we establish all those different characters, uh, and that's good. Um. Okay. Uh, and um, <laughs> Trish, I'm hearing your dogs in the background, and I keep thinking it's oh, my dog upstairs barking. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I, I I keep I, I'm. I'm yeah, I've been hammering here. And the dogs, yeah. But I, I, I keep thinking it's my dog upstairs barking at the construction workers. I'm like, oh, no, 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 no my dog's over there. Okay, okay. okay. yeah. Um, yeah, cool. Um, all right, so we have, again, a lot of episode three is the stuff we've already talked about, establishing the characters, establishing Thingol and Melian in their court. We're getting, uh, getting Diaron and Luthien. Um we need to go go back to Angband. I think we could go to Angband as a transition. I think that we could uh, we could go from Fingolfin and Feanor and cut to Angband and do the because we need to set up the orcs. We need to make sure that the orcs are created before we meet them, right? Um, so we have the creation of the uh, the creation of the orcs, and um, then we cut away from that so that we can meet the orcs later on at the end of that same episode. Um, Okay, then we go to uh, we go back to Thingol and Melian and Luthien and Dairon, um, and now the introduction of Aeol uh, and sort of bringing in the Aeol sto- <clears throat> storyline here. I wonder, is it going to be enough? We already have. Uh, we already have many things. Oh, Kierden. We wanted to go from the storm to Kierden. Right, right. Okay. Um, right, we, we see Kierden before we see Thingol. Sure, yeah. Yeah, I'm fine with cutting to to Kierden uh, from there. Um, uh, I'm thinking, do we go storm, Fingolfin and Feanor, Fingolfin breaking his sword, cut to Kierden? Cut to Angband, then cut to th- to Dorath, so that we don't get Thingol and Melian still for a while there. Um, yeah. Notice this is already a lot of scenes, right? I'm not sure. I I love the introduction of Aeol. Um, or bringing back of Ale. We had him earlier. We had Ale taking part in the debate at Quivienen, which is great. Um, I'm not sure we have room for him here. I might want to save Ale for episode four. Uh, it depends on how much room we have. Um, we could have, I mean, if we need more plot, you know, if we need more story in this episode, we could have an interlude of uh, 
them encountering Ale. So like the movable feast of uh, of Doriath, right, comes to Nan Elmoth, and Ale has since they've last been there, Ale has arrived and claimed it, right? So we could have uh, uh, we could have a um, confrontation between Ale and Thingol there. Um, yeah. Um, if we've got time, if we've got time, we could do that. I don't want to bring meme in yet because we're no dwarves, no dwarves. I don't want any dwarves. I don't want any dwarves on screen in episode three. Dwarves on screen has to be a, an episode four thing. Um, I want to save the reveal of the dwarves. Too many reveals in one episode. I mean, we're, we got to get used to the orcs in this episode. Um, but we could set up Aeol because he's going to be playing a role in episode four uh, with the, with the dwarves. Um, so, so yeah, I, I mean, I, I love the idea how kind of the feast in Nan Elmoth and Aeol saying that he wants to live there. Um, uh, yeah. Well, yeah, Nick, I know there are, Nick says there are 12 to 16 episodes or scenes in an episode. Yeah, but I'm, I'm being real sloppy. I'm not talking about scenes. Um, like the Noldor, I talked about the Noldor thing as a scene. Really, it would be like three or four because we're going to have, you know, Uenin and Ase, we're going to have, and then we're going to have the storm and then we're going to need like uh, reaction shots from, you know, uh, Fingolfin and them on the shore and then we're going to have the ships landing and then we're going to have them talking together. So, I mean, each of these things that I'm describing are going to be a a series of scenes. Um, But anyway, uh, if we have time for Aeol, hmm, Okay, here's my other, here's my, my thematic consideration with Aeol. Pushing Aeol back to episode four enables us to make the orcs be the first discordant note in the elvish paradise. If we bring Aeol in first, then he becomes our first bad guy, right? He becomes our... That, that first discordant note. And uh, I'm not sure I like that. I kind of like the shock of everything is great. Everything has been lovely uh, until Beleg discovers the orcs. And then we can have, you know, so, uh, yeah. yeah. I think Ail needs his own bad guy arc in a separate episode. Yeah, I wouldn't want to just shove him in. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't know. I'm kind of torn between wanting to set him up so that we already have him for episode four when we meet the dwarves. Um, Can we do something at the beginning of episode four with him? Yeah, I mean, we could certainly do the Nan Elmoth thing in episode four. Um... But no, Nick, I'm not suggesting we don't have any fighting. I think we should have fighting. I think that uh, I think that this should be not just a solitary orc. I think this should be a little pack of orcs. Like, I don't know, six, ten, something like that that they meet. A few, you know, not, 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 not just one, not an army, but not just one. Um, 
a pack. They meet a pack of orcs. And the pack of orcs are doing nasty things like torturing animals or, you know, they see them like, you know, chopping up and eating the corpse of a deer or something. Uh, And um, they... You know, Belig cites them. Belig, I would think, should try to befriend them, right? I mean, he should assume, like when he sees them, he's like, "Oh, whoa, I haven't met these guys before." Uh, you know, he's not gonna he's not gonna go all stranger danger the first time he sees the orcs, right? So he's gonna go up to the orcs, and he's gonna be like, "Hi, you know, my name is Belig. Good to meet you. Uh, who are you?" And they're gonna be like, "Blah," right? So they're gonna attack. Um, and he's going to have to, with like much surprise and probably hesitation, um, uh, fight them. Um, and uh, and yes, exactly, David. The, you're on fire today, David. David Atlee says the initial reaction to orcs should prefigure the initial reaction to men. Indeed, I would love to have. Wouldn't it be cool, David? Because remember, uh, Finrod is going to be hunting too when he comes across the the humans. Wouldn't it be cool to create a par- like an actual parallel there? Um, that the scene that they come across is is it's not the same, obviously, but that there should be some kind of visual parallels between. Beleg coming upon the orcs and and uh, Finrod coming upon uh, men later on. I I, I really like that. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so so yeah. So there's definitely going to be combat. Like Beleg and you know he he doesn't have to be alone. Uh, well, I guess it depends. Beleg could be alone if we want to if we want to establish like Beleg the awesome hunter and incredible bowman right having a having a an action scene in which Beleg is like being uh the, you know the 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 hunter becomes the hunted and this troop of orcs to whom he tried to make nice you know attacks him and he you know kills one or two of them right away but then has to flee and and uh you know shoot them from behind trees and so I get that, that, that could be done really well, I think, uh, to show, um, that, uh, you know, Beleg is, uh, a serious butt kicker. Um, but Marielle, so how would that work with Sindar getting slaughtered in equal fights by orcs? First of all, Beleg is unusual, right? Beleg is not just any other elf. Um, and we know that Beleg is equal to many orcs. Like, we, you know, that what he is able to do, you know, shoulder to shoulder with Turin shows that he is very capable of defeating many orcs. Um, but at the same time, um, the the way that the orcs are going to overcome the Sindar is going to be that they're numbers, right? Numbers and like, the, the orcs can't stand against the Noldor. The Noldor just mow them down. We're not going to show the Sindar doing that. Even Beleg's not going to do that. Um, but Beleg can, Beleg can take them. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mario wants them to do damage. Mario, you think we should have uh, Beleg have a red shirt or two? We could do that. I mean, if we want to ramp up the horror a little bit, Beleg could be coming out with two of his close hunting friends, and the orcs get like Beleg could be the only one who escapes, um, and uh, and we kill off the other the other orcs. That would be. Uh... <laughs> Hakan suggests Elmo as the other uh, <laughs> the, the, the guy that we kill off. 
<laughs> there's there's an elf named Elmo, and we don't want anything to do with him. Uh, <laughs> I love that suggestion. Um, yeah, yeah. David is also suggesting we could uh, we could entertain the idea of giving Beleg a scar that would stick around for the rest of the series. So he he receives a wound from the orcs in in his first battle and bears that uh, bears the scar of his first encounter with orcs for the for the rest of his life. Hey, I like it. That would be cool. It's a cool idea. Um. So. Yeah, and we had the suggestion of Mablung encountering the dwarves. I want to save dwarves for episode four. Do we think this is enough? Do we think this is enough? Uh, so, uh, uh, Nick, Marie, Hakon, what do you guys think? If we, if we, so the Noldor stuff that we described right down through the breaking of Fingolfin's sword, Kierden, premonitions of something that happened, right? Being uncertain, established there, the havens. Uh, we, we, we need to have pearls, right? Pearls need to feature, right? We need to have them, um, uh, we need to have, uh, you know, like Kierden with his hands full of pearls at some point, right? Um, and that needs to happen here because we need to, we need to be shipping out the pearls next episode. Uh, um, and then we we Angband the Angband scenes. Uh, so a couple of people were suggesting the Angband scenes could be short. I don't think so. I don't think we want them short um, because I think that we want to be. There's a couple things we want to establish. Goals of the Angband scenes need to be. First, establish Sauron and the proto-orcs, right? What were the proto-orcs like? What is Sauron's relationship with them? We need to establish that. Then we have Morgoth come in and say, uh, you know, we, we need to have uh, them being being twisted and Sauron being miffed. We need to have Bulldog being put under Sauron's command. We need to have uh, Morgoth... Morgoth knows that the Noldor, that Feanor is going to come after him. Morgoth, Morgoth is, is, is not surprised, by Fanor coming after him. Um, so he tells, um, and also he's worried about the Valar coming across, because as far as he knows, like, Orome and Tolkas are going to be right on his heels, right? Um, he's going to be worrying about that too. So the Nolor might come. Uh, he, he believes that it's possible that Feanor will come, but even more, he's worried about Tolkas and Orome. So that's why he puts Gothmog and the Balrogs on the northern front, because he believes that that's the way that the Valar are going to come uh, 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 pursuing him, Sauron. He says, "He, you know, to Sauron, he he gives the the charge of destroying the elves that are in the south because he is done with elves and he wants to he wants to see them all destroyed." Um. But uh, yeah, yeah. Um, do we have Thangarodrum already? Uh, did we raise Thangarodrum in episode one, Nick? Did that happen? Uh, Nick, I'm not sure I'm understanding the distinction you're making between the intro stuff and plot. Isn't the, I mean, there is going to be plot, like the completion of the Noldor plot, like something is going to happen, right? The storm is going to come up. The they're going to survive the storm. They're going to determine that they're going to go forward on, and not be deterred by any attempts of the Valar to stop them. Right. So that's plotty stuff. Okay. Yes, we raised Thangarodrim in episode one. Okay. Great. Perfect. 
Um, no, Hakan, we don't need any Sindar reaction to that. There are no Sindar in the north. Remember, we're simplifying. We're simplifying. There are no Sindar in the north. Um, <clears throat> all of the Sindar are down with Thingol and Melian in Doriath. So when Thangaradrim is raised and Morgoth returns, the Sindar don't know about it. Melian might feel a disturbance in the Force, right? Maybe. Um, uh, but uh, but they, they, they don't see it. Um, it's not it's not part of it. Um, uh, okay. Um, uh, Nick, yeah, the Noldor thing is if I, it, no, it's more than a few minutes. I I, I can't see how we can because remember remember the stuff we talked about with Uinen, right? Uinen's decision to break uh, to go against what Manway said and her being restrained, but then her grief being unable to be restrained. So we need to have, we, we have an Unin scene, right? We're going to, we're going to, we're going to take a couple minutes with Unin, right? And then have the storm and then have them surviving the storm and then having a conversation between Fingolfin and Fay. I'm not in a rush to leave the Noldor. It's fine. Again, if, if that means fewer things can happen in Beleriand, it's, it's cool. Episode three, as far as Beleriand is, is really a setup, right? It's a setup for what's going to, the real action doesn't happen until later on. Um, you know, Beleriand exists. Oh, and the orcs are coming, right? Is enough, right? I mean, that's enough for me to, um, uh, to, 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 for, as, as far as I'm concerned, to sort of happen there. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, so, um, so no, Nick, we don't need to intersperse that. We've been with the Noldor all the way through. We stick with them, right? Until we shift. That's why I said, that's why I was talking about the shift, uh, the transition, um, over to Beleriand and I get, and Kyrdin, you know, you're right, Hakan, we talked about this before and I'd forgotten that Kyrdin is the logical transition, right? As he has some sense of what's happening, you know, he has a premonition from Olmo, from Ase as to what's happening over there. Uh, and he's upset. So we, we get from him to the Havens and from, th- and, and thence to, uh, um, to Doriath. And I'm kind of taking back the order that I said before, maybe, we use. I was thinking of Angband as the transition between, but I'd forgotten. No, Kirtan is the perfect transition in between. So maybe we save Angband. Maybe we do straight. We do the whole Noldor segment, which can be some time, and that's totally fine. And then we do the. And then we go to Kirtan in the Havens, and then to Doriath and establish Beatific Doriath, right? And from there we transit. We 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 shift. To Angban. Meanwhile, in Angban, this stuff is happening, and then that was that. Then leads us to the discovery of the orcs uh, at the end. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's exactly no. Uh, doing that, like I'm not saying halfway through the episode, Nick. I'm saying a third of the way through the episode is when we do that transition. Yep. Yep. Uh huh. That's what's going to happen. It's going to be awesome. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, David says, uh, perhaps we can build some tension in the episode by giving Melian a premonition that something is wrong. Uh, Thingol sends Beleg out to find out what's wrong, and this mystery runs through the episode. Yeah, the only thing I want to be careful of, David, is I wouldn't want to undermine the shock to Beleg and the others. Like, if they're going out looking for trouble... When they see the orcs, they're going to be like, hey, wait, is this the, 
is this the evil, right? You know, is this the 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 trouble that we've gone out to to look for? Um, and then and that undermines the like, hi there, we come in peace, blah, right? All of a sudden, orcs. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, <clears throat> that's uh, that works. <laughs> Nick is unhappy that we're creating a pair of episodes in a single episode. Well, Nick, so the creative challenge then is how do you make them fit? Cause, so let's think about that for a minute. How do you connect them? Um, how are the two halves of this parallel, right? Um, because they can be parallel. I think that we can, we can, we can parallel them, right? Um, The obvious in a sense, right? One way to think about the three different elements in this episode. Uh, you can think of them as sort of three different parts of a it's not exactly a spectrum, but on one end you have the peaceful paradise in Doriath. Um, benevolent, fun-loving, uh, music and dance, everybody's happy, everybody's willing to be happy with each other. On the other end, you've got Angband, obviously, right? And Morgoth and the orcs, which are, you know, the, Mor- the orcs being insufficiently hateful for Morgoth's uh, uh, liking, right? Uh, so you've got Angband at the opposite extreme, which is not only about not having fun, but about going out and wrecking everybody else's fun, right? Um, so you've got them, like, we want to we find happiness and stomp on it. So we've got those at two extreme ends. The Noldor are in the middle, right? On the one hand, Fanor still has and can communicate this vision of the paradise that they can build for themselves in Middle-earth. Right, um, that they are going out in defiance of the Valar, but they're going to go. They're going to. They're going to crush Morgoth. They're going to recover the Silmarils, and they're going to establish. They alone will be masters of the true light, and they will establish this new enlightened realm. Pun fully intended. Uh, over in Middle Earth, right? So he has this image of paradise of the this Noldor para- paradise, but we can see that Fanor's paradise is already perverted, right? It's already twisted and corrupted by his own fall. Uh, well, the fall that he's in the middle of doing. Um, and of course, we have that at the same time, the Noldor are also in the middle in that the kinslaying from which they are still coming with the blood of the Teleri still upon them um, is like the, this like paradise wrecked, right? So the the, the in Beleriand, we have a paradise and the people who are setting out to wreck that paradise, right? And the Noldor are wanting to establish a paradise, but their paradise is already twisted, and they just came from wrecking somebody else's paradise. Um, uh, so, uh, so in that sense, they are the the Noldor are are yes, Tony. They're they're in the middle. They're standing between Morgoth and the Sindar. Um, I think that can work. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but see, Nick, it's not... 
it's not you know, Nick is trying to convince me that that it's like you know combining combining Hamlet and Midsummer Night's Dream in a single play, but it isn't because it's not a comedy and a tragedy. They're both tragedies. They're just at different stages of the tra- like the the different places are in different stages of the tragedy, right? Um, in a sense, in Doriath, we're getting a glimpse of what the Noldor have already lost. And what the Noldor are endangering, in a sense, right? What they just took away, also, from the Teleri. Um, and, of course, we see these enemies out there who are wanting to take it away from them. So the same things are at stake for everybody. It's not a different kind of story. It, again, it's not a comedy and a tragedy mixed together. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so no. I mean, I think if... if um, can I name a single theme that connects this whole episode, all of the, all of these points together? That connects the Angband sequence plus the Doriath sequence plus the Noldor sequence. Yes, my theme for this, uh, and in fact, my uh, um, my suggested. What was the? Didn't we have a? You guys had suggested titles here. Meanwhile, in Balerian, right? Okay, that's a that's a placeholder. Here's my title. Ready? My title of this episode. Paradise Lost. That is my title of this episode. That's the theme. That's the theme that ties everybody together. Paradise Lost. Um, it's just they're 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 in different stages of they're in different stages of of, of losing it, right? Um, and different kind of perspectives on the loss. Uh, so uh, so yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. Um, but no, see, Nick, it's cool that they're in different stages. That's fine. No, 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 not at all. Is it a problem that they're at different stages of that story? They don't, they're not proceeding in peril. The Noldor have already lost their paradise last season, right? You know, when, when, when Finway is killed and Feanor rebel, it's over, right? Um, that's the cool thing is that they're both, they're not in the same place, right? They're fighting the same battles. They're facing the same things, but they're not at the same spot. Uh, in their own particular developments, just like Fanor and Fingolfin are not in the same place, and they're both of them at least experiencing the temptation to fall. Right? They have both of them have like similar paths available to them, but they're not going to go the same way. Right? Their stories aren't going to develop in the same way. You know, fin- uh, really, all three of them: Finarfin, Fingolfin, and Fanor. We have all three of them you know, in a similar situation, but, but they're not in the same places in their own development, in their own rela- in their own relationships with these things. So, um, uh, so yeah, exactly. Tony, Tony says the episode starts with the loss, you know, the, the sort of the, the loss and the aftermath of loss of paradise over in Valinor and ends with the beginning of the loss of the, of the paradise of the Sindar. And that, that trend, that progression, I think can be, can accomplish the sort of sense of inevitability uh, that we get and that the Silmarillion conveys so powerfully, right? Of like, you know, the creeping doom, right? It's, it's all, um, it's all, uh, um, like, you know, it's gonna, it's gonna crumble, right? Uh, it's not gonna stand. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, cool. No, I see, 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 Nick, the more I think about this, the more I love it. I think this works great. Uh, I, I, I don't want to separate them. I want to unseparate them. I want to, I, I deliberately, I think we, we accomplish something by juxtaposing these two. Um, and there's Kierden in the middle, right? Uh, there's Kierden covered in pearls. 
Exactly, Tony. It's all a long defeat, and we can show that. Um, the, the What we're seeing when Beleg encounters the orcs and we get the first violence, the first death, and Mario, I like your idea more and more to give Beleg a red shirt or two in his party so that we can have some elf fatalities in that first encounter um, to really convey the grief and the, the suffering, the, the, the paradise lost element there. Um yeah, the long defeat, right? It's the beginning of the long defeat of Doriath. Um, it'll take a while before Doriath is ultimately destroyed by the Feanorians, right? But still, it's uh, it's going to be... Uh, it's the very first movements towards that we see happening there. Okay, awesome. Great. Well, I need to... Um, uh, I need to... I need to end uh, now. We need, to, we need to close this up. So... Um, questions for next time. Okay, hang on. Nick has one more question here. Nick wants to bookend the episode with the Noldor stuff so it's less disjointed. I'm open to that argument, Nick. I am open to coming back with Fingolfin and Feanor and their debate and the breaking of the sword of Fingolfin at the very end. I don't love it. I don't love it. But I'm not totally opposed to it. Yeah, see, Marie, that's my pro- That's why I don't love it, is Marie says we're leaving the Noldor for four episodes after this. Uh, so ending the episode with the Noldor, that would seem to sort of springboard us forward from Noldor into episodes in which we're not going to see them again for a while. So, uh, so yeah, I, I mean, <clears throat> I'm not going to veto it right now, but I'm not, I'm not, I'd, I, I'm willing to hear arguments for it, but I'm not a I'm not a fan. <clears throat> okay, for next time, what do we want to show of dwarf culture? Um, are we, we're going to have multiple dwarf clans, right? <clears throat> We've got the dwarves of Belagost and the the dwarves of Nogrod. Do we want them different? Should they be very different from the dwarves of Khazad-dûm? Right. That is to say, can we make them different from the dwarves that we know in the Lord of the Rings? Um, how homogeneous? do we want the dwarves to be, is my question, right? And what should we make their culture like? Because um, there's a lot of interesting questions about that. Of course, dwarf culture changes a lot over time in Tolkien's world, so how do we do that? Okay. Um, uh, so, that's my first question. My second question, meme. Uh, we need to introduce meme, I think, in the next episode. What's the relationship between meme and the rest of the dwarves? Is he a loner? Is he not a loner? Is he a, is he attached to one of the clans? Is he a leader of one of the clans? Meme was originally the Durin of the dwarves back in the Book of Lost Tales. He was the eldest of all the dwarves originally. Um, so we could put him in a leadership position, or we could make him an outcast, a loner. If he's a loner, why is he a loner, right? What's up with Meme? So we need some more backstory from Meme and his relationship here. Um, uh, how do the Sindar encounter the dwarves? So, of course... How do we want to do that scene? <clears throat> How is Aeol involved? If we, could, I, I love the whole idea of bringing in the Aeol and non Elmoth business here. Um, how do we connect that with the encounter with the dwarves? Um, so, yeah, how do, how does this how does this unfold? There's a lot to untangle there with the Aeol stuff and the dwarf stuff. And we might as well think a little bit more about Aeol's character. Of course, I didn't put that in as an official question, but we should probably do that since we've kind of put it off uh, for episode four now. We're going to need to 
we're going to need to embrace that for next time. So, all right. So, dwarves for next time. Lots about dwarves. Um, we will start with a general discussion of dwarves and dwarf culture, like we started with the general discussion of of uh, Sindar characters and Sindar culture this time. Um, but um, yeah. So, all right. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. I look forward to our next episode. Our next episode is in two weeks, so we're talking about the first Friday of November, right? Um, the 3rd of no- November 3rd, I believe, would be our date for our next episode. Um, so, all right. Thank you guys very much for joining me, and I will see you guys in two weeks. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. Godspeed.